We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to... Oh. Fitzpatrick with pressure coming, fires, and it is... Is it picked off? It is! Tredavious White! Allen taking a shot, caught! Touchdown! John Brown! Fitzpatrick. Another completion, the ball comes out! Williams had it, lost it! And it's scooped up by Jerry Hughes! Hughes still going inside the 20! Looking for Beasley, he's got it! Touchdown, Buffalo! Beasley's first touchdown as a member of the Bills! Sanders high up in the air, and Micah Hyde has it, and there he goes! Micah to the house! Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rockpile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Andrew Catalan from CBS Sports talking about the Buffalo Bills' second half. <laughs> hey, we're a fourth quarter team there, buddy. What a foot what a football game it was, Chris. What a football game it was. <laughs> Guys, we had an amazing day at, at uh, New Era on Sunday. I mean, if if we want to start this out with a real conversation, my father came to the first football game that I can remember being at with him, and it was it was fun. Came to the tailgate. We had people from Canada come in. Listeners from Minnesota came in. Yeah, Trevor came in from Minnesota. And which, by the way, we should tell you that now. If you guys are coming in from out of town for a game and you need a tailgate, you let us know. <laughs> you come to our tailgate. Always everyone, welcome. Everyone seems to have a blast. We had a we we had a good sized crowd. Everybody had a good time. We went into the game. The weather was gorgeous. It started off a little cool, but it got it, it was great as the day went on. And then we got into the stadium. And that's where that's where things went wrong. I don't know about wrong. In fact, Chris, I'm I'm glad it happened because it was eye opening for me. Because now I understand what my role is here. I get it now. I see, I see it, folks. I'm going to set the scene for you. Our seats 
are on the scoreboard side of the field. Section 200. Row 7. Row 7. Seated immediately in front of us. Those are just open seats. They don't belong to anyone. So they're usually either away fans or they're people who just bought them off StubHub last minute, what have you. So we get into the stadium. The game starts, and I'm immediately seated behind a woman, her husband, and what Chris has informed me is an 11-year-old child, which actually makes this more embarrassing for them. So as the game progresses... I spend the first quarter trying to stop one of my friends from using ridiculous profanity simply because there's a child there, because that's just my own personal thing. I've thrown hot dogs at people over using too much profanity in the stands. Swearing in front of children, I get it, it happens. It's a thing. It's a a professional sporting event. Everyone's drinking, having a good time, and adults are going to cuss a little bit. It's going to happen. I don't condone cussing like a sailor in front of children. Okay? Okay. So here, Chris, so just to paint the picture for you, here's me trying to corral someone else's profanity for most of the first quarter of the football game. And then the game starts playing out, and the uh, obviously, obviously we struggled in the first half. And as I sit there, my criticisms start to become a little sharper and a little sharper, and now I'm yelling about what I'm seeing on the field from the comfort of my seat. I'm not... I'm not touching anyone. I'm not doing anything. I'm just being negative about what I'm seeing, which I don't think anyone can tell me I was wrong. No, because everybody was booing at at halftime. At halftime. The family in front of me decided that I was a problem because I was being so negative that it was upsetting to their son, who now that I know isn't seven the way that I thought he was and that he's 11. Apparently, they blame the poor performance of the team upsetting their child on me and my pointed criticisms and not the fact that the team was underperforming. (laughs) So, at one point, I'm told by our usher as I'm coming back from the bathroom that, just so I know, now Tony, these ushers, these security guys, they've known me for a decade, a literal decade, I've been sitting in the same seats. They we're on a first name basis. Our usher Tony looks at me and goes, Hey man, just so you know, you've got a card waiting for you from security. And I go, What do you mean a card? And he says, Oh, it's like a yellow card in soccer. You gotta go talk to him. You know, someone texted the text line. The text line and complained about you. So security's going to come talk to you. And my response was, fuck that. I'll go talk to security. I'm not scared of these guys. I didn't do anything wrong. So I walk to the top of our section and I start talking to security. Again, I know these guys. And they reluctantly produced a blue piece of paper and put it in my hand. And on it is written the fan codes of conduct and the ejection policy. Now, all of this came about because the people in front of me sent a text to the text line that stated that I was upsetting their child. Not that I was using profanity, not that I was putting hands on anyone, not that I was breaking any of the core rules of attending a sporting event. I'm not an idiot. I've been doing this for years. But because my pointed criticism of the team was upsetting to their child, they texted this fan helpline. And now I'm in trouble? Chris, An oversensitive child cried, and I'm in trouble. 
It's the you, world we live in. What was my reaction to that? Do you remember? The second half, I, I, I think you remember. I might have been pretty tame, right? Yeah, you were tame in the second half, and I gave you your phone back because we were winning. Yep. Well, then I made a phone call to our ticket rep. Because I'll tell you this. I don't buy into this nonsense idea that you as a... You as... Okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a season ticket holder. I'm a loyal supporter of the team. And the security even said, we've, you've been here for years and we've never had a problem with you, but the text came in and it's a unilateral policy. There is no context provided to how this works. You're just in trouble because someone complained. It may be baseless. It might be crazy, but you're in trouble. So I called their ticket rep, Chris, and here's how the conversation went. First, I asked. Did you do this on Monday? Yes. All right. My first question, is this something that's going to be held against me? I didn't break any rules. I didn't do anything. If I was visibly doing something that was upsetting to everybody or I was being profane or I could understand. But 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 badgering, talking poorly about the team to the point that it upset some oversensitive child. Well, your, your uh, criticisms were 100% directed at Josh Allen. I mean, the kid was wearing a Josh Allen jersey. I, so it was probably his favorite player and you were upsetting him. This is the world we live in. Okay, so here's what I informed our ticket wrap off. First of all, he said, no, they don't carry over from a game-to-game basis. And, you know, sometimes these things happen, at which I lost my fucking mind. And here's what I told him, Chris. I said to him, then you know what? I'm going to make sure that this never happens again. And he said, well, you know, that's probably best for everybody. I told him, oh, no, you have no idea. You have no idea what I'm going to do. Because I have a couple things going for me. One, I have disposable income. And two, I'm incredibly petty. I told him, here's what's going to happen. Me and the people who currently have season tickets with me, they're not in your system. People I know who don't have them, who don't want them, they're not in your system. I'm going to launch a campaign. And by proxy, I'm going to start buying up season tickets all over this section. Every year, I'm going to buy three more. And then I'm going to roll the profits of those into buying more tickets. And when I own at least a third of the section, I'm going to sell them exclusively to away fans. And do you want to know why, Chris? Because if I want to complain about the quarterback during a football game, you know who's not going to call the the, the, the quote-unquote stadium police on me? When I criticize, when I sit in the seat that I paid for and rightfully criticize the job that my quarterback is doing or that my offensive coordinator is doing or that any player from the comfort of the seat that I paid for, you know who's not going to text the the, the stadium police on me? Away fans! I'll shut this whole fucking thing down. I'll ruin everything. That was my response to our ticket rep. And he thought I was an absolute madman. Chris, what what do you think about that? Well, at least from my perspective, it wasn't just this this family of three. Like, the people to their right were also yelling at you. You had at least six or seven people yelling at you. and Because I'm pointing out things that I don't like about the way our team's performing. Exactly. But apparently... And as as you should. Now, some of them had made eye contact with me, like, uh, you know, it was like... Uh, they made the eye, kind of eye contact, like, hey, do something. But I looked at that situation like, you're Syria, they're Turkey, looking at the United States for help. It's not my problem. <laughs> I'm not getting involved with this. 
You yell at Drew. You handle it. I don't need to get involved. You do your own thing. I'm not getting involved. If if I can be honest. I'm not getting involved. Part of it was fueled by the fact that this woman kept turning around and telling me to stop being negative. First of all, who who do you think you are to tell me how I should feel about my football team? What? Because it's upsetting to your child to hear me talk about how he misses every deep ball over 30 yards. Well, I'm sorry. That's a fact. I'm sorry. Facts hurt your child's feelings. This is the real world. Don't bring a kid who's that sensitive to a football game and put him in front of me. I, I just I, I don't know what to do except to, to just explode. I leaned into it, Chris. Instead of leaning out, I leaned in. You want to know why? Because that's how I felt. And after thinking about it, I feel, Chris, you know, I feel like the Tony Montana of our section. I literally walk away from it the way... Chris, if we can move on from this, I understand that maybe making a kid, that's not good. I don't want to upset anybody. I'm here. To, Chris, the you've only- seen me stick up for people in the section. To, I've stopped nonsense. People who are heckling other people. I've been there. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, that's the reason security and the ushers all know me. And that's the reason that they're all comfortable with this concept that, yeah, maybe he upset these people, but I'm sure he didn't deserve it. Yeah, and we haven't mentioned in the last 10 minutes talking about this. Uh, there's a family section. Go sit in the family section. It's absolutely ridiculous. This text line thing is absurd, and I'm sure it's only going to get worse. And so to that end, I warn anybody out there who might do the same or who might behave the same way when you're out there with your child, be careful because you might run into me. I, 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 just, I feel like at this point I am the Tony Montana of the rock pile. You're all a bunch of fucking assholes. You know why? You don't have the guts to be what you want to be. You need people like me. You need people like me so you can point your fucking fingers and say, that's the bad guy. So, what I make you? Good? Between this Josh Allen stuff, this stadium stuff, folks, you want me to be the bad guy, I'll be the bad guy. All right? I'm trying not to be. <laughs> That's it. That's all I have to say. Ugh. All right, Chris. Can we get into tonight's show? Now that I've got that off my chest and I feel better about it, and I, Chris, I seriously don't want to have to go nuclear about this. I don't want to by proxy fill up our section with the Way fans. I don't want to. I believe you will do that. But out of rage, you have no idea the things that <laughs> the things that an idiot with income can do. It's just I think about these things and I want to do horrible things, but I don't because I don't want to ruin it for everybody else. I don't, and it's usually how I approach every single game. Oh, God, Chris, I'm going to Tony Montana us right out of this place. Let's just get into this. Guys, we're going to resurrect a segment we haven't done in a while, and that's this week's Bills News Update. I want to talk about the trade deadline. The trade deadline and why I think the Bills should stand pat. I mean, it's coming. Next week marks the official end of any kind of inter-team, short of cutting and signing guys off waivers. 
It marks the end of a team's ability for the course of the 2019 season to make any kind of maneuver to move players from one team to the, to the next. It's funny, Chris, because for years, do you remember nobody gave a shit about the NFL trade deadline? It was meaningless. No, it, it, I think it's, I don't understand how it could be a thing because it, it, you have to pick up a, a new playbook and terminology. No. It seems like it. I understand, but, but Chris, here's the thing. It's kind of like hockey. The trade deadline in hockey is a huge deal. I love the, the trade Buffalo deadline. Buffalo Sabres fans know that the trade deadline is something everybody's glued. Your eyes are glued to it regardless of which side of the equation you're on, whether you're a buyer or a seller. Here's the problem, Chris. The NFL, it was all about parity. The NFL has always been about parity. Is it shocking to you, though, like as we talked about in last week's podcast, I believe it was, we talked about how there haven't been that many winless teams coming into this point in the season. Chris, six teams didn't have a win going into week five. We're only at week seven. Some of those teams still don't have wins. Cincinnati, Miami, you've got uh, what? The, what The Cardinals are on a three-game winning streak against other winless teams. <laughs> the, Fal- the Falcons have one win. As parity in the NFL has started to slip and cap space has increased over as it does every single year, we've seen a huge uptick in terms of teams just trying to get rid of bloated contracts or just unfavorable skill sets. Because think about it, Chris. Teams that are usually bad enough to be at the bottom of the league, they're probably either starting a rebuild or they feature a coaching staff that's on its way out. And a front office that probably says, you know what? If we can get something for this guy who may not fit our future just because of what he brings to the table physically, then screw it. We'll get rid of him. We'll get him out of here. Get more draft picks that we can use to speed up the inevitable rebuild. Now, that's it. And then you you look at it from contenders. If they know there's a market and there's now all of a sudden an ability to give up picks for players who can actually come in and contribute... I mean, Chris, in the past, all of these guys who were getting traded were just depth players. They were backups. Now you see star players on the move. You see guys who had previously gotten paid, maybe erroneously, to whatever that team's expectations were. Those are the contracts you see getting shuffled around. And it's created this environment where, like in hockey, teams can really try to load up for a run just by giving up some future draft capital. Yeah, there's so many teams trying to get to the bottom this year. It's insane. Well, and that's the thing. So now, with the Bills at 5-1, and one, I can totally understand why they're in that conversation. I just don't agree with it. Chris, what's your opinion on giving up future draft picks for talent here in 2019? I mean, I don't think we should. I'm kind of with you. We should stand pat. I don't think there's... A lot of people on Twitter like to make the argument of getting in a receiver here. We just signed two receivers to big deals in the offseason. Why do we need more? I think we're I think we're fine all around. I wouldn't make a trade. See, one of the things I can't stand, you were talking about Twitter. It's soul crushing to me to try to listen to regular radio and just hear them take phone calls about rampant trade speculation. Chris, it's 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 meaningless. It just fills up the air. <laughs> and then to hear people call in to say that the Bills should trade for you know, some specific player that they have a man crush on. Someone actually just told me. I heard I had this said to me on more than one occasion by the same person. 
that the Bills should try to trade for the recently extended Julio Jones. That's the kind of input that you're getting when you when you listen to those types of conversations. I mean, Julio Jones, Chris. Hey, there's uh, on our on our on our timeline earlier today. There's somebody called Gr today uh, saying we should trade for Mariota. Like, get out of here. That's a horrible idea. I mean, ultimately, I'm not going to try to have a conversation with anybody about the targets bill the, the Bills, quote-unquote, should be pursuing. I'm going to do the opposite. I want to point out why trying to make a trade here in 2019 is a bad point. It starts with the inflated market. It's like a couple years ago here in Buffalo, for those of you elsewhere listening, the housing market hit an all-time high here in Buffalo, I think. Right around when I was shopping for a house. So what you were finding was homes that would normally go for 120, 130 bucks. They were selling on the first weekend. My father-in-law's house, the house that we were renting from him, we bought our house. He didn't even have an open house for it. He put it probably about $20,000 over what he expected to get and it sold in the first week. That's what things are now in the housing market here in Buffalo. Because everybody's desperate and looking for property, especially when interest rates are low. Well, it's the same thing with the NFL trade market. Contending teams are looking at these terrible rosters and saying, there's talent out there and I need to make a run. And what it's doing is it's increasing and inflating the value of these guys. Two weeks ago, a Pro Football Talk article came out stating that the currently undefeated San Francisco 49ers were bowing out of the trade market for an offensive tackle, despite the fact that both of their starters, both left and right, and their backup, were all sidelined with injuries. And the reason was, quote-unquote, a lack of smart options at the time. After seeing the fact that Laramie Tunsil, the Dolphin, who got shipped off to the Texans, cost multiple first- and second-round draft picks, Chris, you'd have to be inclined to agree, right? Yeah. When's the last time you saw a left tackle that was worth multiple first-round draft picks? Jason Peters! Jason Peters playing for the Buffalo Bills years ago wasn't worth multiple first-round draft picks, and he's been a perennial pro bowler. Yeah. But Laramie Tunsil was worth two and change. That's absurd. Yeah, and you wonder if the Redskins are going to ship Trent Williams this week. They're, they're, they keep sticking to their guns saying they're not, and people have said that when they call, the price is ridiculous. Of course it is, because the market dictates that it should be ridiculous. And, and I, I guess that's the thing. For people saying that, oh, well, you know, you know there's, that that's not indicative of the market for quote-unquote replacement-level players. The Patriots, I want you all to recall the fact that the Patriots burned a fifth-round pick trading for a guy who was going to get cut from our roster in Russ Bodine, who wasn't good enough to make your team. They literally threw a fifth-round pick away just taking a flyer on a center because that's what the trade market dictates you have to spend. At the same time, Chris, you look at other positions off the offensive line. Minka Fitzpatrick, he was just drafted a year ago in the, what, 11th round? And 11th he, overall. And he just, 11th round, 11th overall, he just brought a first round pick back to the Dolphins. That's probably going to be based on where the Steelers were. They already knew that. It's not like they made the trade and then lost their quarterback. They knew they were probably going to be a bad football team and then they made the trade anyway. 
and gave up what might be a top 15 pick for this one defensive back. Look at Jalen Ramsey. The Rams shipped off two first-round draft picks for a cornerback who, yes, he's a gamer, he's competitive, he might be one of the better cornerbacks in the game, but you're playing a position where wins above replacement rate? For those of you who follow baseball, that's a stat you guys are probably used to. It's the... It's essentially a metric that measures how easily you can replace a guy at a given position. Cornerbacks go in and out. That's a thing that happens, Chris. And in terms of wins above replacement, they're probably right above linebackers in terms of importance to a game and that they're some of the most easily replaceable players from one week to the next over the course of a season. But you just gave up two first-round draft picks for one. That's what the market dictates they're worth now. And the wide receiver position, the one that the Bills have been most talked about in terms of trades. The Patriots just today traded a second-round pick for Mohamed Sanyu. Not Emmanuel Sanders, not A.J. Green, Mohamed Sanyu. The guy, he not only costs you this year, but he's on your books next year for over $6 million at the age of 30. Doesn't have a 100-yard game this year. Doesn't have a 1,000-yard season in his entire career and is a lost man on an offense that isn't winning any football games. <laughs> that cost you a second-round pick. Who else is thrilled about that? I mean, Chris, if that's the cost of a player that caliber, I can only imagine what the market must be for a guy like Stephon Diggs, who, admittedly, I'd love to see in a Bills uniform. For people who are out there going, oh, well, a first-round pick might be worth it. Look at our first-round picks under McBean. Since McDermott and Brandon Bean got here, Josh Allen, Ed Oliver, Tremaine Edmonds, Tredavious White. Chris, would you give up any one of those players for help at the wide receiver position? It's a hard pass. No, thank you. Hard pass. Then you talk about, oh, well, what if you could get a guy with a bloated contract who's old, who's injury-prone? I don't know. Like I've seen this absurd idea that somehow A.J. Green could be had for a late-round pick. Well, the Mohamed Sanyu trade blows that out of the water. But even if it was multiple late-round picks, look at what we've done with late-round picks. The guy's currently playing key roles for the team. Matt Milano, fifth-round draft pick. Saran Neal, I believe he was a fourth, but he might have also been a fifth. Knox, Singletary, Deion Dawkins. Three of those players you didn't believe in. No, but they're playing key roles for the team right now. A team that's 5-1. and one. So through that lens, if, you're, if the going rate for a guy, the caliber of Sanyu is a late second, you have to ask yourself, am I willing to give up a combination of players, the caliber of those guys? Like, imagine if you, would be, if you knew going into it, you were giving up Edmonds, Milano, and Dawkins. And that's what it took to land a good but not otherworldly wide receiver. That sounds like lunacy, right? I, I just I can't subscribe to any of this. And so it's with that that I honestly, I'll leave it up to the rest of you to dissect how this all plays out. But Chris, I think that the Bills would be making a mistake if they don't stand pat through the trade deadline. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> All right, folks, 
It's time to recap this week's football game because let's face it, the team is a surprising 5-1 if you watch the first half of the game, which I apparently am, I'm the bad guy. (laughs) Chris, I'm going to get a tattooed. I'm going to get a tattooed right (laughs) Oh, God. It's just an otherworldly frustrating day. I'm going to have to change the intro to the show to Razor Ramon's theme. Oh, my God, that would be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But with that, guys... Our Week 7 recap, the Buffalo Bills against the Miami Dolphins, we come away with a victory, 31-21, a 10-point win. Stats of the game, Josh Allen, 16-26, good for 61.5, 202 for yardage, two touchdowns, no interceptions, and a 111 rating. Ryan Fitzpatrick, 23-35, good for 65.7, 282, a touch, a pick, and an 88.2% rating. Third down conversions, Miami was 7 of 13, the Bills were 3 of 10. The Bills front 7, 1 sack, 4 tackles for a loss, 6 quarterback hits, 5 rushing first downs allowed. Lorenzo Alexander, 96% of defensive snaps, most of the 2019 season for him. Maurice Alexander, 47% of defensive snaps. Saran Neal, zero snaps on defense, 59% special teams. Tredavious White, five targets, one reception for five yards. One forced fumble, one interception, and a 92 pro football focus grade, which was the highest defensive back grade of the week. First half, Josh Allen, 6 for 15, 90 yards, no touchdowns. Second half, Josh Allen, 10 of 11, 110 and two touches. Chris, I think if you're going to start a conversation about this football game, you start in a place where, I don't know how else to say it. What happened to this idea that Miami was just going to go belly up for us? Did the team underwhelm? Or did we just walk into this with unreasonable expectations? I think we. I think the uh, we got in our heads there. I thought they. Um, I thought the team thought that, that oh, this will just be a cakewalk, and didn't put in the effort because at least in the first half, you could tell it was on all sides of the ball that they weren't performing on offense or on defense. I mean, Sunday's game was a lot closer than even the most pessimistic Bills fan could have could have imagined heading into the game. But no one should be surprised. And no, I'm not trying to be a dick about this. I'm not trying to be contrarian. I'm not trying to be... I mean this, sincerely. Yes, I firmly agree with Travis Wingfield, last week's guest, that the Dolphins are probably one of the most untalented teams in the NFL. But there were some signs there that I think we all might have missed that this wasn't going to be a walkthrough. Let Let me run them down for you, Chris. First of all, Movement away from Josh Rosen to Fitzpatrick by head coach Brian Flores. You name Josh Rosen as your starter for the rest of the season. And then you go into that game against Washington. Okay? And he comes off the bench and almost wins you a football game. If you were truly trying to be as bad as you possibly could be, you'd never make that move. And yet when he named Fitzpatrick the starter, like I said, my stomach dropped because I'm like, well, we're in for a fist fight because that's what Ryan Fitzpatrick brings to the table. I mean, Chris, he plays with a perennial chip on his shoulder. 
because he knows what he is. He's a journeyman who gets off on the idea that I'm still here. I'm, he's like a cockroach. You can't kill him because he, he goes he, to another team and he still performs. Yeah, he's like good for like four games. You can't get him as a starter and ask him to perform well all 16 weeks. No. You can get him for about four good games a year. Absolutely. That's all he's good for. Then you look, but the fact that they went to him in the first place underscores the fact that that coach isn't just content with losing. Then he shuffles the offensive lineup. Now, if you're trying to be the worst team ever and you have a proven formula on how to get there, you don't bring in a new center. I mean, I know Dan Kilgore was out with injury. He, he was out with injury. But then you move the guards around and you do some experimentation with guys in different places up there on the offensive line and you find out that, hey, all of a sudden, we're not... Re- Chris, remember all the stats I was talking about last week about how our defensive tackles should dominate the game? Because yes. that's how bad they've been up front? Yes. Well, guess what? You put in a new center and you shuffle your guards around a little bit, bring in another young guy to take on a spot, and all of a sudden, they they played pretty well. Right? That's not the move you make if you're tanking. And then... I think one of the biggest things, you know, people were making fun of the fact that the rookie defensive tackle for the Dolphins, Christian Wilkins, his blow-up that got him ejected from the game on the second play of the game. Frustration like that, when you think about it on its face, that usually takes at least a quarter or two. Chris, when you've seen guys get ejected, it's never right out of the gate. It's usually over the course of a football game where there's some long, protracted animosity between two guys. Usually one on the offensive line, one on the defensive line. And inevitably, whoever's getting frustrated, whoever's not performing, they tend to snap at some point during the game. Yeah. And they take a liberty or two, and that's usually where that type of thing comes from. Yeah, it usually happens with a running back and uh, somebody on the D-line. usually happens in your end zone while you're getting a beer. (laughs) Oh, I just described Jacksonville last year. (laughs) My point is, Frustration like that usually takes a quarter or two of chippy play to marinate and then finally come to fruition. I was absolutely caught off guard by the fact that it happened on the second play, but I've been thinking about it ever since then. What people might forget about Christian Wilkins, Wilkinson, he played for a stud prep school out of Massachusetts in high school. He played for a two-time national champion in Clemson. He's not accustomed to losing. It's It's never been what's acceptable to him. He's never had to be around a losing team. So obviously the guy's pissed, and he's taking it personally, and it took two plays for that to boil to the surface. Now, in his locker room interview, there was an interesting comment made by wide receiver Cole Beasley after the game, indicating that they expected the Finns to play more man concepts than zone, and that it was part of what caused the offense to struggle until they could make some adjustments in the second half. Now, <laughs> Chris, a team that's emotional, a team that's still doing film study and trying to throw their opponents curveballs in terms of what their game plan is going to be, subbing in players that you know give, gives you a better chance to score more points, which obviously you'd think would lead to a victory. That doesn't sound like the behavior of a team trying to be the worst in the NFL. And despite what the box scores might tell you, Miami hasn't exactly rolled over for anybody out of the gate. Bill's safety Micah Hyde had this to say during his postgame presser. Every single game that Miami has played, it's been, other than the first game, it's been close at halftime. Um, you know, we're getting booed running at halftime. We understand we're not playing well, but this is, this is the NFL, man. Like, you, 
you got to compete each and every week. It doesn't matter what the record is. Those guys are trying to get their first win. We're trying to get our fifth win. And from there, it's going to be a close game. Um, divisional game. They know they know us. We know them. You know, it's kind of one of those things that you got to you got to go out there and and we understood it was going to be a sixty minute game, and it was. That's Micah Hyde from his post game interview over at BuffaloBills.com. It's hilarious. Matt Perino was actually just in the background of the video. If you go and watch it, although at one point he's turned around and not even looking at the like, I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> Perino, what are you doing out there? Ultimately, front office executives, Chris, front offices, they tank players. The guys who have to go out there and put their big meaties on the chopping block every Sunday. Out there in pursuit of a paycheck. Those guys, those guys don't tank. Position by position, the Buffalo Bills are a more talented roster than the Miami Dolphins. I don't need a scoreboard to tell me that. But at the same time, they're also an incredibly frustrated and desperate group of professional athletes who... With someone like Ryan Fitzpatrick, who has proven over the years that it doesn't matter what shit show he gets thrown into. Chris, think about it. Tampa Bay, he gets thrown in there as the starter. There's three, four good weeks. The Houston Texans, he gets thrown in as the starter. The Rams, he gets thrown in as the starter. I know, not the Rams, the Titans. He started with the Rams. I know. Titans. So the Titans, he he gets thrown in as the starter. And he plays to a level that keeps people on the bench. To the level that, because that's what he is. He's a gamer. No, he's not otherworldly talented. No, he's not good enough to win you 10 games out of 16. What he is, though, is that when when you have another group of frustrated individuals like he is, who he, he can rally those guys, Chris. And we saw that. We absolutely saw it. They're capable of giving any NFL team a run for their money if that team allows it. So, Chris, I, I got to say, I got I to gotta get a fresh beer. Kudos to the Miami Dolphins, okay? Hopefully, this game is a wake-up wake up call to our staff and to the players, to a man. You can't just walk in here. Now, Micah Hyde, he sounds pretty sure of it. He sounds pretty sure of the fact that they knew, hey, they're going to be tough in the first half. You're going to have to keep that in mind when you come up against real competition, which starts here pretty quickly. Yep, because Sunday. our schedule picks up from here. <sighs> One of my other uh, just kind of analyses of the game is that Matt Milano, somebody get that guy a get well card. I don't know what you got to get him because he, we need him back here soon. One of the biggest things I took away from rewatching the game after I got home was just how much this defense, even with all the growth that we've applauded Tremaine Edmonds for, relies on the presence of Matt Milano. He really has anchored the play of our linebackers. And you can make an argument, maybe even the front seven as a whole. It starts in the first half, Chris. The Dolphins do a great job of establishing the run. Some guy named Mark Walton. I don't do you know a Mark Walton? I know, I've never heard I know of him Bill before. Walton, big white guy that played basketball. Okay. I don't know a Mark Walton, but some guy named Mark Walton showed up on Sunday had multiple big plays in the ground against us, and their success rushing between the tackles really set the tone. I mean, that was something that shocked me about the way this game started. Miami came out running the ball and running it successfully against our front seven. And then, because that worked, it opened them up to a lot of you know, some rollouts, a lot of play action that all seemed to be funneled towards Levi Wallace, who I feel bad for. 
Wallace did a great job of the whole bend, not break zone defense. But on comebacks, curls, outs to the sideline, they ate him up. He completed 10 passes inside of 10 yards all to Wallace's side of the field. And that was enough to just keep our offense unbalanced for most of the game. I mean, Chris, throughout the first three quarters, their offense was moving the ball, correct? Yeah, it was weird. None of it was deep. They, they definitely didn't challenge our safeties. Because I think Ryan Fitzpatrick understands at this point in his career, his arm isn't there. But instead, what they did was they funneled everything towards Levi Wallace. And that's what they used when they weren't running the football well and they couldn't get anything in front of our linebackers. But that's the other thing. Our linebackers gave up a ton in pass coverage, more than they usually do. And when you look at that, a big part of it is because you don't have Matt Milano in coverage, which forces you. Now, Chris, this is what I love. The team experimented with a few different looks, but it's clear that (laughs) it's clear that Lorenzo Alexander, he's still at his best when he's a Sam linebacker who's only on the field about 40% of the time. He played 96% of the snaps. okay, And that's dictated by the fact that the Dolphins spent most of the game using just two wide receiver sets. okay. Their third, you go down the chart of who played what in terms of snap counts, their third wide receiver only played 26 total plays in the game. They ran two wide receivers with double tight ends, extra offensive linemen, and they, which forced us to put Lorenzo Alexander on the field. And he was just exposed a bit. You saw it on a handful of plays, and you saw it in pass coverage. He just wasn't up to snuff. And on the other side, I really like Mo Alexander, and I really like the acquisition of him. Everybody probably remembers me talking about how happy I was he was part of his team. He really disappointed me on Sunday. Really disappointed me in terms of what I thought we were getting from him in coverage and run support. Now, I understand, Chris, with Teron Johnson finally being healthy, they want to get him back out on the field. But I don't understand Saron Neal getting zero snaps on defense. That seems like a mistake to me. Especially when you consider what you were getting out of your kind of makeshift linebacker position, all trying to make up for the lack of Matt Milano. Is this that big nickel thing you talk about? No, I guess. I guess you could call it that, but we played a lot of base defense. Here's the problem. Big nickel is fine when you're going three wide with another wide receiver on the field. It's not fine when you're putting a safety on the field who has to play the job of a linebacker. That's not good. And that's what we saw on Sunday. And it it absolutely, I think, was one of the things that dictated the way Miami was able to move the ball on us. I mean, ultimately we won, and our defense found a way to stop the bleeding. But I'm convinced that if nothing else, the value of Matt Milano to this defense was soundly exposed on Sunday. Soundly exposed. And so with that, I'm just, Chris, you got to pray that he's available against the uh, against the Eagles because it's a big ask against a much better football team. I mean, we're lucky the defense gelled the way it did in the second half. And a lot of that came from safety support, but ultimately we did. Chris, if this game defined anything for me, it's that without Matt Milano... Here I am thinking Tremaine Edmonds. He's the one making the def- our linebacker core go. And in one game without Matt Milano, I'm, I'm, I, I can't wait to see him back out there on the field. Yeah, well, Milano's what? He's got the experience, right? I would, I would assume that Matt Milano is the one that calls defensive plays or is the communicator Edmonds out on the field. Edmonds is the communicator, but the problem is that Matt Milano is the coverage guy. 
And you saw that get worked a bit in this game. I mean, it was bad. Ultimately, I, I assume he's getting closer. He was questionable this week after a week of practice. He was limited. They held him out again. Hope We got to hope he's ready to go this weekend. Because what we saw Sunday was bad. But, I mean, Chris, it wasn't all terrible. I mean, we we could talk all day, and I'm sure there's smarter people, and every other podcast is going to do their critique of the first half. I'm going to save you guys. I'm going to spare you. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for the Buffalo Bills on Sunday. Some of our more veteran talents, like Jerry Hughes and Trent Murphy, were absolutely held in check by the opponent's game plan. Chris, they both played more than 60%. Neither one of them put up a meaningful statistic to be I, I can't find a one. Oh, I um, Jerry Hughes had a fumble recovery. Does that matter? He had the fumble recovery. Okay, I'll give him that. Okay, Trent Murphy, one quarterback hit. Eh, he had a tackle for a loss. I'll give him that. Otherwise, though, pressure-wise, you saw Ryan Fitzpatrick with a lot of time to operate. I mean, Chris, am I? You I can't have that. I know you're new to this, but tell me that you saw a little bit of what I saw. Yeah, I think Miami kept uh, kept taking what we were giving them. Yeah, and I think one of the problems is that when you have guys who you expect to bring the pressure and they don't, things go to shit pretty quickly. Offensive execution was difficult to come by. With some key drops, some miscues, Josh Allen in that first half, he really missed some. I mean, there's the play where he throws the ball to Dawson Knox. Okay, That's the one that I've seen thrown around social media. The ball hits Knox. It's a it's a late throw. Allen doesn't throw the ball on time when he needs to, so it's a little bit behind our tight end. But he needs to not be looking upfield. He needs to bring that ball in before he thinks about running away with it. Yeah, that was in our end zone. That was hard to watch. Yes. So when you see plays like that, you think about it and you say, "Okay, <laughs> execution was hard to come by. There was some key miscues, but also on that play, Chris." He has a wide-open Isaiah McKenzie on kind of just like a a route to the sideline and up. And if he hits him with a pass, Isaiah McKenzie probably gets a first down there, maybe takes it another seven or eight yards before anyone can catch him. That's called what, a a wheel route? Nah, not not quite a wheel route, but close. See, you're learning. Look at this. God. Yeah, I know. Cheers. Toast me, you son of a bitch. I invented the wheel. God, I'm proud of you. But with that said... With everything that went wrong, there's one thing that's clear to me out of this game, and that's that our our impact players, the core, the nucleus of this football team, they stepped up. They stepped up when when listen, when the bell rang, they answered it. And that was it. And it's becoming more of a trend as the weeks go by. When we win football games, it's because our most talented players and our young stars. They're stepping up and playing like it. And look at Tremaine Edmonds. Wasn't great. He didn't have an overwhelmingly, you know, he didn't have a fantastic game. But at the same time, he made huge plays in the first half when the game was very much still on the bubble. I mean, Chris, he gets an eight-yard loss on a screen pass to the running back that inevitably forces a punt. He gets some big stops at the line of scrimmage in that first half when Miami's just trying to lean on their running game because it's working. Chris, Micah Hyde. Micah Hyde! 
Okay, Micah Hyde, who was a cast off from the Green Bay Packers that nobody wanted. By this point, we all know that he's a, he's a core part of this team. I mean, Jordan Poyer's great, don't get me wrong, but Micah Hyde, this season more than most, I think he's really stepped forward as, I don't know if you want to call it an elder statesman, but he's the go-to guy in our secondary. Because he's great in coverage, he picks off Tom Brady, saves the game, or at least keeps us within striking distance. In the moment, you're like, okay, he saved the game for us there. With that one play, he kept us in this. Well, he did it again on Sunday, and it was hilarious hearing him talk about it after the game. I'm just like, yo, there's nobody here. And the touchdown, the end zone was just like, oh. And I'm like, I was just, I just went. It's um, hard to tell anybody to go down in that situation, I know, right? I, know, I mean, but I have to, though. Were I you thinking to. at all about it for a second? I, I literally, as I'm running, you can watch the film. I kind of peeked to the sideline. I was just like, oh, man, I don't know what's the score. Uh, but it's it's kind of this is a crazy league. I got I got to go down. They you know even though there's what how much time was the forty seconds or a minute a minute and a half or whatever something. it was you know to I've seen crazier things in this league for them to come down score on another onside kick get it one play field goal somehow tied up so um, good play but I got to go down. Micah Hyde post game interview over at BuffaloBills.com. If that doesn't sound like a leader to me, Chris. When you get a chance to score an NFL touchdown as a defensive player, you take it every time. 100%. Yet here's this guy who in our secondary goes, I scored, but he's reluctant, reluctantly scored. He admits, yeah, I thought about going down, but it was just too enticing to run it into the end zone. But he understands the nuance and why it's important to just, hey, eat it. Why? Because no one can hurt you at that point. It's the smart play. Chris, you know, it iced the game with that touchdown, and obviously it made for one of the best. Chris, one of the best highlight reel plays we've had on special teams in a long time. After last year's fiasco that was our special teams unit, a play like that just, I don't know, it puts a little shine, it gets a little national attention on the Bills. But I like the fact that he knows that what he did, even though it seems like the right thing at the time wasn't, that's a leader. That's a guy who understands all phases of the game and everything that goes into it. Every aspect of it. He's sorry. He feels bad about scoring a touchdown. (laughs) But ultimately, he stepped up when he was asked. We've talked about it multiple times on this podcast. About how wide receivers John Brown and Cole Beasley have been Allen's go-to options. And the fact that they accumulate over 80% of his first down passes so far. In the second half, when they were playing from behind, Brown produced 56 of his 83 yards on three catches. Cole Beasley got all three of his catches for the game, and they each found their way into the end zone. They stepped up. Okay, We changed their offensive philosophy. They made the plays when they had to. Defensive tackle Jordan Phillips, a guy who we signed. Chris, the Dolphins cut him. They cut him. They didn't need him. Well, they cut everyone and or traded everyone. That was last year they cut him. Yeah. We brought him in, and then we gave him a flyer on a one-year deal just to see what he had, if he could make good on the promise that he showed last year. Chris, he comes through in the clutch with a ridiculous sack of Ryan Fitzpatrick on the two-yard line. Chris, when on that sack, he blows through the offense. It's like he knew the snap count. And yeah, he's it was in the insane. Ba- he's insane in the how fast he got back there. He's in the backfield as the ball is getting into the backfield. 
and sacks Ryan Fitzpatrick for a sack fumble that he inevitably recovers. But that's the play that sets the table for what's to come. And that's cornerback Trey White. Okay, I can't say enough. This whole His whole game was absurd. It's disgusting. Chris, you look at the passing chart that I provided for you here in tonight's show notes. I like it. It's in color. There's a lot of green on the left where it says uh, Levi Wallace. <laughs> and then what's it say on the right over there? Uh, there's a few dots. Some are grayed out, and there's one red one. Fucking right. So what that underscores is Trey White, when he was targeted in coverage, he not only didn't give up anything down the field, okay? Fitz avoided him. Avoided him like the plague. And when he didn't, Trey White made him pay for it. With that ridiculous interception, not only to save a touchdown, but set up a scoring drive when the team desperately needed it. And then follows it up with a forced fumble that sets up the score that ultimately puts the game away. Chris, I don't think it would be hyperbole if I were to look back at this game and call it the Trey White game. No? Yeah. He was the best player for us all day long. I mean, it's fucking crazy to me. You have to be encouraged that these core players that we've drafted, that we've seen, that we've picked out of you know the Jordan Phillipses of the world, the Micah Hydes of the world, who were castoffs from other places, that our GM and our coaching staff kind of found in terms of, hey, we think these guys can fit what we want to be here. And now they're becoming the nucleus of what's driving us to victory. That has to leave you <laughs> feeling pretty good, right? That they can pull your ass out of the fire when your team desperately needs it. Absolutely. God. And I would be remiss if I didn't get into this, Chris, because this game truly was a tale of two Josh Allens. <sighs> We're playing a dangerous and altogether exciting game, guys. We have a quarterback who truly is the embodiment of Jekyll and Hyde, and I can't wrap my head around it. This game started very much in the same way our game against the Titans did. Allen was up. He was down. The offense just kind of sputtered. <laughs> Chris, at, no, at what point in the first half did you ever feel good about what we were doing with the ball? I mean, I didn't like what I was seeing, but... Throughout the first half, I knew that we were still in the game. Well, and that's it. I guess if there's any caveat you could give to what they did was they did enough. They did enough to keep us in the game. I want to point this out, though. <laughs> Josh Allen. Josh Allen now has a quarterback rating of 78.4 in the first half of games. That's 30th in the NFL. But in the fourth quarter, Josh Allen's stats are he's 22 of 32 for 312 yards, four touchdowns, and no picks, which is a 122.9 rating. Chris, that's the third best fourth quarter quarterback rating outside of Matt Ryan and Deshaun Watson. Chris, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I feel like I've lost my fucking mind here because that's it. Chris, how can you be that? How can one quarterback be two people? How can one quarterback be the guy who <laughs> threw two quarters of football? I mean, I'm looking at it right now. The Bills are 23rd in first quarter scoring and they're 18th in second 
Second quarter scoring. We are the second best scoring team in football in the fourth quarter. I mean, I just look at stuff, the stats like this, and and what I take away from it is that Josh, if Josh Allen's playing bad, he can forget about it and get his head together for the fourth quarter. It's almost like a Tim Tebow. You know, Tim Tebow would be shit for three quarters, and then all of a sudden just have one drive and Denver wins. Chris, I wish I had some Frank's Red Hot for some of the crow that I... (laughs) Sunday, with the game on the line, one of your young star players hands momentum back to a team that desperately needs it. Trey White gets that interception on the two-yard line. Normally, I don't, in that situation, really don't count a, uh, you know, you look at the term points off turnovers. You know, it's at the two-yard line. Now we got to go 98 yards. How often does that happen? It doesn't happen. Especially not to to us. That's not a thing that happens in the NFL. And yet, backed up into the shadow of their own goalposts, Josh Allen came out and did what is somehow becoming the norm here in Buffalo. Another clutch 90-plus yard touchdown drive to take the lead. Not just let it, he was 6 of 6 for 73 yards and a touchdown while completing three passes of more than 10 yards, Chris. Which is important because he only had two of them in the entire first half. I don't know what to make of this. Guys, trust me, I'm not ready to start anointing Josh Allen as a franchise quarterback. And yet, despite all of the criticism I've lobbied at him in the past two months, Chris, I this is something that I can't believe I'm about to say. You have to love what Josh Allen is under pressure. You have to. The guy comes out when it matters. For as much as I may hate, I rail against this idea that he's the 20, our offense is the 25th scoring offense in football. Well, yeah, but when it matters, he puts on a drive that some quarterbacks, literally, that's a wet dream for them. Some quarterbacks can only fantasize sexually about putting on a 98 yard touchdown drive in which they don't miss a single pass. Not one. Not only that, but then they run it down there and get the two-point conversion. And then you take the football and you throw it a mile into the stands. You peg some poor bastard in the chest. (laughs) Hopefully you don't kill him. Chris, that's every quarterback's wet dream. Yeah, it's good to see that uh, Josh Allen looks like he's got the clutch gene. (sighs) I mean, I just, I think about this. Years of anti-clutch play from quarterbacks wearing a Bills uniform. Tyrod Taylor. I think back to that game against the Patriots where the Patriots knew the game was over, but we were trying to mount a furious comeback. And Tyrod Taylor has the ball. We're down eight. Throws a pick and ends the game. Ryan Fitzpatrick in Foxborough might bring us back. He has the, we have the ball in the red zone. He throws the game-ending interception in the end zone to lose the game. J.P. Lossman fucking drew Bledsoe. The guy lost the backups. I'm still angry. Chris, oh, I'm still angry about Drew Bledsoe for all the praise it gets heaped on him. (laughs) I'm sorry, folks. I did. Yeah, calm down. I had to take a walk for a second. It's just Drew Bledsoe. (sighs) I've watched a lot of Bills quarterbacks 
who could keep you afloat, but couldn't pull your ass out of the fire when you needed it. And instead, we've got Forrest Gump over here, fucking Josh Allen, who, when things are bad, I don't know, Chris, he's pulling everybody out of the fire. I, he, <laughs> I don't know what it is. There's something most quarterbacks in the NFL can't stake a claim to. And that's it. It, it. And it's something that as he matures, you can only hope starts to spill over into the rest of his game and becomes the norm. Because it would be nice to not have to wait until I'm ready to throw up out of frustration to watch Josh Allen all of a sudden say, hey, guess what? I'm the man. Fuck you. That's it. That's what he does. He comes out. I feel like there's just a point where the pressure's on and he's just in. It started week one against the Jets. And I'll never forget it. Reading that article and where they asked Lorenzo Alexander if he was worried as one of the team's leader of, leaders about Josh Allen. And he said, no, jo- Josh was walking the sideline with a smile on his face. And he was just like, oh, I've got this. And then he went out and won the game. And he did the same thing on Sunday. Chris, I... You know that I haven't been a Josh Allen supporter. Our listeners know this. And yet here I am. Chris, That that's to me, that's bigger than anything you do in the first, second quarter. I don't give a shit about what your completion percentage is. When you're the guy... What about adjusted can, completion? Oh! I'll, be, I'll hit someone with a steel chair like this was WWE if you mention adjusting completion percentage around me. But knowing that we have a quarterback who, when the chips are down, somehow finds a way. I don't even know what that... Chris, this is, this is new for me. I was a child when Jim Kelly retired. In my adult life, I don't know what this is. But it's exciting. <laughs> and with that, that brings us to the hero and zero of the week. And you'd want to give it to Josh Allen, but Jesus Christ, if Trey White didn't earn it, I don't know who did. Do you know who the real heroes are? The guys who wake up every morning and go into their normal jobs and get a distress call from the commissioner and take off their glasses and change into capes and fly around fighting crime. Uh, what is it, a pick six or an interception and then a forced fumble on back-to-back defensive drives? And both of them led to points. He was asked about it in his post-game, his post-game interview. He was asked about if he, you know, hey, you know the, this whole like uh, turnovers leading to points and right now you're leading the team. And he was just like, I don't know. I don't even know what that means. I'm just out here playing football. You got to love the, you got to love Trey White. You have to. Chris, at this point, if Micah Hyde is the leader, I think of that secondary, because I think he's a little bit older. He's seen more than Trey White. But if there's a guy that you can rely on from one week to the next to the next to bring elite level of competition to your, to your defense, it's Trey White, right? Yeah, he's the man. God, that's if I didn't have a thing against buying jerseys of people that are younger than me, I'd, I'd have to consider it. And then this week zero, it was tough. It was tough to pin down because that first half was so ugly and that second half was so good. So I'm going to give it to offensive coordinator Brian Dayball. <laughs> wow, you suck at this. The reason I'm going to give it to Brian Dayball is because it's your fault I was fighting with that child in the first place. The, the reason... All of my frustration spilled over when I watched the Buffalo Bills in the red zone, or at least borderline red zone. It's third and one, Chris. You're going to try to throw a pass. 
on third and fucking one against the Miami fucking Dolphins. I'd spread it out and give it to Singletary. You're an ass. You, sir, are an ass of the highest order. I think that's what I said. And that got the, the kid turned around and said, hey, don't talk about my quarterback. And I was like, kid, I'm not talking about the quarterback. Pay attention. And that started us down the road to hell. I blame Brian Dayball for this. Yes, I guess my own impulsiveness and my just willingness to argue with anybody about everything also plays a role into that. But at the end of the day, what we were doing in the first half, Chris, I, I don't know, and I don't want to see it again, especially against teams that can actually move the football at an NFL caliber level. Final thoughts. What do, what do you take away from this game, Chris? When, when you think about what this means to you as somebody who watches the Bills every single week, you sit in the stadium with me, we take this in, what does this win mean to you? Well, I kind of look at it as a whole. We're 5-1, and one, and I was going to pose this, this question to you that I thought about today. And the only... I'll pose the question, and then I'll, I'll tell you, like, two stats that I vaguely looked up about it. Because if you look at it, I mean, how, how often does that Micah Hyde touchdown happen? Onside kick return for the Oh, touchdown. never. Yeah, never. So essentially, you could, you could count that as a one-possession win. Which is yes. would be four of our five wins are one possession. And I was thinking about it. Are we this year's 2018 Chicago Bears? Because they had six one possession wins. Trubisky was in his second year. I vaguely went through the box scores and they had a lot of, he had a lot of 200, 235 yard passing games, two touchdowns, <sighs> barely squeaking by, great defense. You know, Am I wrong for thinking that? Not at all. In fact, that's Chris, fucking fill your hands, sir. Get a fresh beer. You you earned it here tonight, sir. God. Is that um, that's a great fucking question? And you know what? I mean, tweet at us at Rockpile Report if you agree with me. I mean, I hardly come around with like good ideas like this, like my cooking analogy from last year. It just <laughs> seems like we're the 2018 Bears. Great defense, average quarterback play with a second year quarterback. And you just hope Josh Allen gets better. I was just thinking about that earlier today. I don't know. Call me crazy. I don't. I'm, I'm not, not going to call I'm you not crazy. a football savant. I'm not going to call you crazy. What I'm going to say is that that's that's pretty astute. We're doing it differently than they did. But you're right. There are similarities. There's some corollary there. When you look at what they were, they were a team that very much the defense carried the load, which caused a lot of close games. But the defense got it done when it mattered. And that's what our team's been doing. When the when the bell rings, they answer. And that's what this team has done through the early going of the season. Now, I'm not going to be able to co-sign that theory until I see them play some dynamic offenses. Obviously, the Patriots, yeah, the Patriots are beating up everybody. Yeah, now that they got Sanu. <laughs> fuck that guy and fuck those Patriots. But... When I think about where this team could be, I think I think we're close to that kind of model. Our defense isn't nearly as dominant. Don't get me wrong. That our defense isn't scoring points. That's one thing, Chris, that you lose in that analogy. They had the number one scoring defense in terms of defense generating points. The Bears' defense last year overwhelmed people. They they pick six. Think about the Peterman game. The Peterman game. Yeah, they did. Uh, they did. 
I think I, I looked at that box score earlier uh, during the show, and I think like Trubisky had like 135 yards passing. He and didn't we, have and, to do anything. Yeah. We just kept giving up the ball for. Yeah, sport. we lost. Well, I think it was 41 to nine. Their defense made a lot of people pay, and our defense isn't scoring quite on that level. But they're being clutch when they have to. Now the question is, can they do it against top-flight competition? I'm willing to buy into this theory of yours. I need to see it against teams like who we're going to play this Sunday. I need to see it against teams that I know can score 20 to 30 points. You do it then, I'm willing to buy into that. For me, I guess I want to start with, as has become kind of a recurring thing for the show, I want to play for you Colin Cowherd's take on the team, in which he has us listed as part of his weekly herd hierarchy. Buffalo. Now, I've said this all year. Ceiling's low for me, but here's an interesting stat. What have I been bragging about with the Bills all year? The coaching. They are now 3-0 and off a bye with Sean McDermott. Very Belichickian. Very Sean Payton, Andy Reid. Buys matter more to well-coached teams. They have an 18-game streak of not allowing 400 yards. Tom Brady looked absolutely awful against them. Now, there are some limitations offensively, but I will say this. When they get into the red zone, they give you sevens, not threes. Buffalo at six. That is Colin Cowherd, Fox Sports Radio, Fox Sports 1. Number six on his herd hierarchy, Drew. Baltimore at 10. Indianapolis at 9. Um, Houston at 8. And number 7, Carolina. Things were all better than those teams. Wow. Guys, that's, that's a lot to take in. I mean, I look at Carolina and I see a dynamic running back in Christian McCaffrey, but I don't see skill position players that are really doing anything. The wide receivers aren't producing the way you'd want them to. Their defense is doing adequate. They're winning football games. Houston. Houston has an offense that can some weeks put up 40 points. And other weeks they can do 10 or 15. If <laughs> you count what J.J. Watt's capable of. Ultimately, I, I don't know if I agree with the assessment, but the fact is, is that people are coming around. It's worth noting Pro Football Talk had us ranked six in their, in their power rankings this week. The national media is falling in love with this Buffalo Bills team because they're seeing what they're doing. And now I have to start checking my own biases. Not because I'm afraid that I'm overranking them, Chris. I'm afraid that I'm thinking too little of them. Because as a Bills fan, a long-suffering Bills fan, my immediate knee-jerk reaction is to just find an umbrella and wait for the other shoe to fall. This game left me with a few thoughts. The first one, even when th- most things are going wrong, this staff finds a way to make adjustments. Chris, we need to stop discounting the fact that once a team tips their hands, our, our coaching staff does a really good job of finding ways to exploit it. It's not just Josh Allen running around out here single-handedly manufacturing comebacks. This team is taking into account what teams are giving us, and then in the second half of our football games is using that against them to a point where our offense finally gets off the ground and we've been winning football games. I'd argue that if Josh Allen was in the game, Chris, after that hit that he took in the Patriots game, I think that would end differently. I think Josh Allen, based on what I've seen from him, his body of work is that in that fourth quarter, you can't stop him. He becomes something else. So with that said, kudos to the coaching staff for pointing that out. And they did it again this week. 
And number two is that this team, earlier this year, I claimed them as the cardiac kids because they were, they had a defense that was good enough to keep you in every single game and an offense that wasn't good enough to just flat out put anyone away. Not only will they continue to be that, Chris, but I think that's the sort that they almost live and die by. One thing I think about when I watch college football all the time is that it sucks. Like, I watch Alabama. They're, they're my team. Do you know how much it sucks watching teams come out at the half, having diagnosed our defense? If you're winning by 17 points, what are you going to change, Chris, philosophically? If what you're doing is working, why would you change it, right? Yeah, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Okay. So that makes you a sitting duck for adjustments. We aren't that team. <laughs> we haven't been. Which makes us hard to play for four quarters. If you think about it from through that lens, I'm not trying to make excuses for being mediocre or trying to paint this like, hey, not being good for four quarters is a good thing. But the fact that we struggle in the first half of games and then come away in the second half again and again and again, it just to me smacks of this team that says, look, we're going we're gonna to come in with a plan. We're going to change it when we have to. But there's something to the idea that we're the ones who are working around our opponent and not them doing the opposite to us. I just, I, I don't know. It works. And so with that, Chris, we're five and one. We're five and one, and we're who's not thrilled about this? Hey, we can only play the schedule we're given. And That's all I gotta say. Effing right. And so with that, this week's AFC East Roundup, Week Seven edition. It's real short because the other two teams involved played each other. New York and New England, Patriots thirty-three, Jets zero. Typically, the Jets play the Patriots tough when they get them at home, Chris. <laughs> I mean, think about the, the Austin Safarian Jenkins fumble out of the end zone game. Or the butt fumble. The butt, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> there was reason to believe that I could see a decent game last night, but nothing even close to that happened. Sam Darnold had himself a f- uh, just an absolute disaster of a game. In the sense that things started ugly, and at no point did they ever get better. On offense, Gangreen managed just 167 total yards and no points. The Jets' defense got steamrolled to the tune of 17 first quarter points, which were all fueled by Sam Darnold's ability to stop turning the ball over. The run defense, just by the end of the game, had nothing left to give. And ultimately, the result was the largest shutout win the Pats have ever had against the Jets in either franchise's history. Chris, that that stings considering it was on national TV. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I always like seeing the Jets get pummeled on national television. The scoreboard doesn't even do it justice for what a disaster it was. Sam Darnold posted the worst numbers by a Jets quarterback in franchise history. Somehow even worse than anything Luke Falk has put on the table this season. He didn't diagnose coverage as pre-snap. He couldn't adjust to pressure. There was multiple plays where they showed pre-snap pressure, and he just didn't talk to the offensive line. He didn't try to shuffle anybody. He didn't point it out. His mechanics were repeatedly pointed out for just being atrocious, resulting in multiple interceptions. Chris, the worst one was the one in the end zone, the second one, where he was caught on TV 
afterwards with shitty mechanics, then admitting that he was, quote-unquote, seeing ghosts. His stat line, 11 for 30, which is 36%. 86 yards, four picks, one fumble, and a passer rating of 3.6. Chris, that's, that's a single digit. One number. I want to provide some context for all of you out there listening to the podcast. In Nathan Peterman's five interception and one fumble game against the Chargers in 2017, Peterman still achieved a passer rating of 17.9. And yet last night, Sam Darnold had a 3.6. Chris, I can't even underscore how bad it is. Instead, I'm going to defer to Evan Silva of the Joe... What is it, Joe and Evan? Yeah, Evan Roberts. (laughs) You looked afraid. Afraid. And I'll tell you who should be fired this morning. Not quite Adam Gase yet. But you know who should be fired this morning? Whoever works for the New York Jets, and maybe it is Adam Gase, and agreed to have Sam Darnold, who's essentially oh, still a rookie, God. okay, he's a baby, oh, to God. let this guy get mic'd How up on a that? Monday night, and it just adds oh. to the constant embarrassment we face as fans. Why can't we just suck in our own privacy yep. like the Cincinnati Bengals do? Thank you. Like the Miami Dolphins right, do right, until right. Monday against the Steelers. Right. Why does the Jet stinking, the Jet awfulness, always have to appear on a grand stage. Whether it was the overhyped, over-talked-about butt fumble, which I'm sick of hearing about, or now something you and I and every Jet fan's going to have to live with for a long time, and that's the I see ghosts game. Oh, God. Because that's what it is. I know. How come they just can't suck quietly like the Bengals do? Evan Roberts, Joe Hefner, (laughs) WFAN in New York City. Oh, my God, Chris. You can't suck quietly like Cincinnati and Miami. You're in New York. You're in New York. You're in New York. You got to deal with it. Oh, God. I can't tell you guys how how hard I laughed today at work as I'm listening to that. I'm laughing. I'm crying now. Oh, why can't we just suck quietly? Yeah, because you're not in (laughs) southern Ohio like Cincinnati. I mean, let's, let's not get carried away here, though. Brady wasn't spectacular either. 249 and a passer rating of 80.7. It's not otherworldly. Chris, it's just another game where he's just, I don't know, approaching slightly above average. That's it. Ryan Fitzpatrick outplayed him against the Buffalo Bills. But between giveaways, failures to, to, to tackle on third and 10, drop passes, untimely penalties, the Jets literally threw themselves Head first into this raging inferno that is the Bilicek and Brady era volcano. That's it. And there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing anybody can do to help them. I mean, they're just... It was one of the most inept performances I've ever seen a football team put on. And Chris, not going to lie to you, I enjoyed every fucking second of it. I enjoyed every second of it. (sighs) Now, what we have in front of us, Chris, it's, it's important. It's a measuring stick game. You know, obviously, we don't want to go out there and look like the Jets just did. Philadelphia. We don't have an overwhelmingly positive record against Philadelphia. I mean, NFC games are always hard. Chris, is it safe to say that I think we get blown out of more... We get beaten in more NFC games. But not just beaten, but beaten badly. 
than we've won convincingly over the last decade. Uh, well, I'm thinking in my head, the game where Ryan Fitzpatrick and we shut out the Redskins in Canada, which led to Ryan Fitzpatrick's extension, and then we immediately just get train wrecked by the Cowboys. You think about a couple years ago, we went down to Washington and got our heads kicked in. Well, all time against Philadelphia, we are 6-7. and seven. Okay, that's fair. But I bet you recently we probably haven't been pretty good. I'd say recently in the last few years we probably lost far more than we've won. Uh, we have lost three of the last four. Exactly. But none of them blowouts. No, but it's, it's hard to game for a, a team that you only see once every now and again. Yeah, once every four years. It's hard to understand. Like the way Miami prepared for us and the way we prepare for Miami, we see each other twice a year every single year forever. So we know each other a little bit better. That's why division rivalries are always so good. And that's why they get a lot of primetime run, you know, just around the country. These types of games are always, it's, it's weird because you don't know who's going to show up and who's not. But here's what I do know. Philadelphia, just philosophically, Chris, the city of Philadelphia fucking bothers me. First of all, you're the Liberty Bell. You have the Liberty Bell. It's cracked. Everyone thinks it's cool, right? That might be the best part of your entire city. I, I know people from Pittsburgh who, if you bring up Philadelphians, they'll flat out tell you, oh, wait, that guy's from Philly. Oh, he's not invited. Chris, is it safe to say that people from Philly suck and by an extension, their city sucks? Yeah, and then by could, a further extension, their football team sucks. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, I don't think I've met a, a ton of people from Philadelphia that I like. See, in preparation for this game, I'm reminded of a story that a listener of the show, friend of me and Chris, uh, our friend, he happens to be a minister. And he told me a story about the city of Philadelphia that I think properly encapsulates exactly what they are and who they are for everybody out there. <laughs> he's a minister. And his first real assignment, he's working out of Philadelphia. And he's doing a sermon about tribalism and how tribalism is bad when you look at what the Bible says and how even if you don't agree with people philosophically, you should love them anyway. And so to try to prove his point in the middle of his sermon, he pulls out a Terrell Owens jersey. Terrell Owens had just been signed by the Buffalo Bills. He puts his Buffalo Bills T.O. jersey on and proceeds to be booed, which he expected. Then he moves on with his, his sermon, but the booing doesn't stop. And it's not just one or two people, it's like 10. It's like 10 or 15 people booing in church. We're talking about church. People are booing the pastor. So he finally says, okay, you know what? All right, I'll take it off just so I can get through what I have to get through here because I think that what I have to say is important. He takes the jersey off, he folds it up, he puts it in the pulpit. He gives the rest of his, his sermon. And then, like any good, I don't know, someone who runs the church, I mean, I'm not an avid churchgoer, but he goes, as anyone who runs those sorts of meetings do, he goes out into the crowd to shake hands with everybody and, you know, thank them for coming and talk. And then he goes back to the pulpit after everyone's leaving and realizes someone stole his Terrell Owens jersey. I want to repeat that. A pastor brought something into a church and it was stolen 
in the middle of Sunday church. He brought it up to some people in the congregation, and the reaction he got was, yeah, well, it's Terrell Owens. Not, holy fuck, you stole from a, you stole from a man of God in a house of worship. No, no. But it's Terrell Owens. That, that story right there encapsulates everything that I, I know to be true about Philadelphia. All right, Bills fans, and with no further ado, we're going to kick off our week eight preview. The Philadelphia Eagles against the Buffalo Bills. The time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Place, New Era Field, Orchard Park, New York. The crew is someone named John Hussey. Now, I looked that up right before we started recording, and it's important because as long as I don't know the officiating crew's name, that probably means they're not, they're not out to screw us. At least I don't know it going into it. And Chris, I do believe the line is one and a half. Is that correct? We are one and a half point favorites? I have no idea. That would sound about right, the way they played in Dallas and uh, us being five and one. Now, it's always hard, you know, being a fan of the AFC East, watching all, you know, watching where the Bills have been in the AFC standings. It's really hard to try to take a look across into the NFC and really know what the hell is going on over there other than what you see in the headlines. And so with that, we have a guest on tonight who's going to walk us through everything that's going on in the great city of Philly. Mr. Michael Kist, how are you doing this evening? It's it's been a long time coming for for this show with all the chatter and the in the summer and me going back and forth with Bill's Mafia, who I love by the way, I I, I really do. Uh, but I'm excited for this. It's it's going to be a fun week. I wish it was under different circumstances with the Eagles, but you know, here we are. Oh, absolutely. So for those of you who aren't familiar, Mr. Michael Kist is one of the he's the co-host, or I don't know. I, I think because he has the deeper voice, I'm willing to defer to him as the host of there the Bleeding go. Green Nation Radio podcast. He works for Bleeding Green Nation from. SB Nation. He does a ton of scouting and draft work in the summertime. We usually have him on for our annual draft preview series because, let's face it, guys, I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to this. I, I know nothing. I hated Matt Milano. I thought Trey White was a bust. Everything that's good, like if I pick something, just do the opposite and you're probably going to be great. And he's a long-suffering Eagles fan. So I feel like we kind of have some common ground in terms of how we feel about our fan bases. I mean, yeah. do you think I covered everything there, Mike? Yeah, no, I, I think you did. You put in Bleeding Green Nation into any podcast app and it'll come up. And, you, and you're right. I can, and we were talking about this before the show. I can absolutely empathize with Bills fans. In fact, on, on our feed on BGN, I just put up an episode from Seamus Clancy and the episode is from the bleachers and the episode title is, you know, Bills, Bills Mafia. Like you're one of us basically because we have this thing in, in Philadelphia where we're diseased Eagles fans. And I feel like the Bills are the same way. I mean, there's there's a difference in, in recent history for the Eagles, but we've known that feeling that that the Bills fans have known for a long time. And, it, and it's it's still a part of our fan base, you know, maybe not to the degree that it is for, for the Bills right now, but we get it. Trust me, we <laughs> understand. Though I, I love the passion that Bills fans have and I understand their plight. Well, I'm glad somebody can share our pain because I'll tell you, it's it's rough over here. I mean, the Dolphins fans, they rest on their laurels. Jets fans, for some reason, still feel like they can claim that one Super Bowl they won, which I have a personal policy. If if the last time you won a championship in a sport, your own father wasn't legally allowed to drink, you don't get to claim that. That's not yours. That's not yours. You just put the jersey on. Mm -hmm. 
But so that's like uh, all the '90s Cowboys fans that were like six. Like you know, you get your balls got to drop before you can claim that stuff, brother. My middle name is <laughs> Dallas, and I was a kid. I was in elementary school when the Bills lost those Super Bowls. My, I, I'm scarred. Okay, I have. <laughs> I, I as an adult still hold some grudges over that stuff. Yeah, I was, I was rooting for the Bills in those. I, I can. I can. Those are like the first Super Bowls that I remember. The first Super Bowl I remember watching was was the uh, Scott Norwood. Wide right, and I was just like a run of them, and I hated the Cowboys growing up. So I was a, I was a big Bill supporter, and you know, we know how that went. Well, unfortunately, that's not going to be the same on Sunday. And I guess if mm. we're going to so if we're going to start talking about the Eagles, the first thing I want to know from you, because it's an interesting storyline, and I just don't know how to track it as an outsider. You go, Doug, head coach Doug Peterson, from hoisting a Lombardi to hot water. How do you get here? I mean, I'm thinking about this. When Peterson took the stage holding up a Super Bowl trophy just, a, what, a few years ago? He was crowned. And I still believe that some of this is true as having arrived as one of the new, innovative offensive minds in the NFL. And yet, if for as true as that may still be, <laughs> I can see he's already starting to lose some of his shine in the eyes of Eagles fans in the media. What, tell me a little bit about this. How does that, how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, it happens when you, when you go three and four, when you have expectations of, of being a team that's going to be a top talented team in the NFL in terms of, you know, the, the guys that they have there and the skill and everyone was talking about the offense. I mean, we, we bought into it here in Philly too, myself, myself included. So, you know, drastically underperforming expectations. Uh, we'll, we'll get you in, in hot water. I don't know if, if, if that's the right word. You know, fans are obviously pissed off at yes. him. And, you know, I totally get that. Oh, I don't think he's but, in any danger. I just. Right, right, right. I just. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's shocking to me because I feel like, Chris, if someone were here, like a head, if Sean McDermott were to win the Bills a Super Bowl, like, I think we'd climb Mount Rushmore as a city and just carve his face into the other side of it. Like, that that's a thing that would happen. That's 100% true. I don't, there'd be a statue bigger than the statue of Ralph Wilson outside the stadium for all time. No, we'd reshape that statue to look like <laughs> McDermott. So with that said, it's just surprising to me to see that he's coming under so much fire. But I, get, I mean, I get some of it. I mean, first I, of I all. Want, I want to tell you this. Yeah. You think all that's going to happen, right? This the statue is going to go up. You know, the, he's going to replace the Rocky statue, basically mm-hmm. in the in the hearts of minds of of Philadelphia Eagles fans. You think the fan base is going to calm down? But I'm going to tell you right now, if the Bills win a Super Bowl this year, and then two years later they're three and four, you're going to be going through the same thing. I 100 percent guarantee. You. Okay, people have people have short memories, man. Because I think I think part of the reason for this mentality from the Eagles fans right now, number one, I think they're just as passionate as Bills fans, and that's a compliment to both fan bases, right? They're they're very emotionally attached to their team, and I and I love that about them. But at, at the same time, when when <laughs> you're expecting this thing to be a dynasty. And you start to really believe that this is going to be a multi-year thing, like sure shot going to the playoffs. Like last year, they had to scrape their way into the playoffs. They still won a playoff game. One of the most banged up teams in history to win a playoff game per football outsider. So Doug did a great job with that. But as soon as things start to go wrong, buddy, <laughs> the thing, things are not all gumdrops and lollipops on, on, on that side anymore. They, we, are, we were expecting dynasty here in Philadelphia. I think the same thing would happen with the Buffalo Bills. And when that doesn't happen, people people tend to forget what happened a couple of years ago and start to focus on how bad the now is. That's true. I mean, because we you're 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 a captive you're a captive of the moment. 
Yeah. And I, I have to say he's been victim of, I think, one of the most, I, I could crown it, most awkward interview moments of the entire 2019 season to date. And you got to know what I'm talking about. It was one of the most awkward moments. Peterson is there at a press conference and he gets asked by a, uh, he gets asked why a longtime media personality and sideline reporter. His name's Howard Eskin. Yeah. I mean, the, the guy was given a Super Bowl ring by the team, publicly yeah. admitted that Alshon Jeffrey was this quote unquote anonymous player railing against the offense about the quarterback. And he gets asked in the middle of a presser, why would he do such a thing unless it was something that the team wanted the public to know? Now, for Bills fans out there listening to that, that would be like the equivalent of an anonymous player ripping the coach. And then Chris Brown just going on to a random interview with WGR 550 and admitting, oh, yeah, it was Trey White. It was right. Trey White. He's sick of this coach's scheme. He doesn't like our quarterback. <laughs> like That's what we're talking about here. And when Peterson got asked that question, it's the first time I've ever seen a coach just kind of flummoxed. I don't think he knew what to say. Yeah, and, and there were some different moments for him throughout the week. Like He kind of gave like a soft guarantee of a win in Dallas. And then when the media really pressed him on in the press conference, like he dialed that back like – he was saying, like, oh, it's not really a guarantee. Like, man, if you're going to say it, put your nuts on the table and say it. <laughs> well, Be fearless. It. You wrote the book called Fearless. Be fearless. If that's how you need to motivate the team to go and play, go and do it. And that's one of his strengths is motivating the team to go and play. And another another reporter asked him, you know, is there something going on with the preparedness of this team because of the sloppy starts and the way that they consistently shoot themselves in the foot? And week after week, you know, one off- at least one offensive player has the worst game of their life. And he, he said, so you're questioning, you know, how, how prepared my team is that I'm not getting that prepared. I'm like, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. That is the question, Doug. Yeah. Yes, we did ask that question. Now, why don't you give me an answer? And he right. just walks around it because that's what coaches yeah. do. I get it. They have to. Yeah. If, if coaches told the truth all the time behind the podium, they'd never be hired. I mean, let's. <laughs> is it safe to say that this game is borderlining the territory? I mean, I get it. You guys aren't out of things by any stretch of the imagination. The you're, the NFC East this year isn't it's the a, NFC least. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's not a great division. It's not a powerhouse division. So with that said, you know, having three wins, you're not out of anything yet. But does this game in the minds of you know guys like you who follow the team as closely as you do fans, is this borderlining a must win for the team? Yeah, you you don't want to go down what three and three and five and and put your playoff chances probably somewhere around ten percent. I think it was going to be twenty five percent of this game for them specifically with with the Cowboys. They dropped that one, and and it's weird because like a loss to the Bills really doesn't do much to the playoff equation because it's a different conference. You know, it's not mm-hmm. a divisional opponent in the NFC or anything mm-hmm. like that. But at the same time, you feel like you got to you got to see something turn around to have faith. Psychologically, you're saying it's important. It's right. important psychologically both for the team and for the fans that they come out and right. get this. Because we just went through that with a team who gave us, I, I mean, if you want to talk about a team that you expect to suck, giving you their best shot, listen, that's that's what these guys are. And teams that are backed into a corner, those guys are dangerous. Yeah. I mean, so, they had two losses in a row to the Falcons and the Lions, and then they come out and beat the Packers. And look how much the confidence in the fan base shifted then. Yep. So you get two losses to the Vikings and the Cowboys where you look absolutely hopeless. You get blown out by 18 and 17 points. You come out and beat the Bills at Buffalo when the Bills, you know, their record is whatever, but they've won the games, the, the opponents that are put in front of them. Mm-hmm. If you come out and win that game and you look like a different team, yeah, it's a totally different feeling. If you don't, 
and you even if you lose a close one, you're on a three-game losing skid. I mean, Dallas was on a three-game losing skid. They were about to shoot Jason Garrett into the sun yet again. <laughs> so yeah, it would be it would be dire in that case. They need to finish up strong. They need to win two before the bye week because after that, you know, they got Patriots and Seahawks oh, right Jesus. after the bye. All so right. they need to get right. So it sounds like there's some intensity heading into this, which, hey, yeah. we got to strap in and be ready for it. So I guess I want to start with the offense. If we're going to try to break down what the Eagles are bringing, bringing to the table. In a recent article over at Bleeding Green Nation, Brandon Lee, and I'm going to butcher his last name, is it Gowton? Gowton, yep. Gowton. I was reading an article of his, and he described the Eagles offense as, quote unquote, slow and plodding. And he noted that there are a ton of aging and ineffective players and not enough productive youth. Now, I heard you and Ben Solak going back and forth in your podcast after the loss to the after the loss to Dallas over the weekend. And one of the points that he brought Ben brought up was that you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't want to get younger, but then also want spot on effectiveness because there's a yeah. learning curve in football. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with Gowton's assessment? And where do you see this offense in terms of overall talent? Yeah, I'm going to have my cake and eat it too, and kind of agree with Brandon, but also uh, agree with Ben. I just think that the 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 whole hinge to that is Deshaun Jackson not, and he's not going to be 100 percent for the entirety of this season. Guy might need surgery. I mean, it, it's it's bad, and that was that was the deep threat. That was what was going to open the offense up. Without him and without Nelson Aguilar, who has taken a serious step back, especially from his 2017 deep ball production, I thought he was the backup plan as far as like the deep guy goes. But him and Carson Wentz haven't been in on, on the same page. They haven't been able to connect. So what you see is a slow offense. And J.J. Ortega-Whiteside is having trouble getting back on the field for some reason. I guess the team feels like you know they want to, they want to cross-train him at multiple positions, and it's kind of slowing down his ability to get on the field. This guy had a drop in the Lions game, could have been a touchdown, could have won the game. They've let him sit in that. You know, the Eagles consistently talk about going back to players after they make a mistake. They constantly have to do it with Nelson Aguilar because he makes so many mistakes <laughs> to, to, get their, to build their confidence back up. They Did- let Jaw, who's a rookie, sit in this, you know, lay down at night, put his head on the pillow, and that's the thing he's thinking about. That's what's keeping him up at night. But I think that's malpractice on, on the one hand. Uh, but yeah, overall, this, this team is slow. Like, Dallas Goddard is athletic, but he's athletic for a tight end. You know, Al- Alshon Jeffrey has been a little bit banged up this year. Guy's slow. Let's call it what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, he's still. Oh, he was never a receiver. burner. It's why he fell to the second round in the first place. Because everyone right. who was looking at first round wide receivers said, Alshon Jeffrey, he's just slow. He's a big possession receiver. Now, he's yeah. obviously proven he can be more dynamic than that. But it speaks to the fact that there's not, without, without a deep threat, Listen, I've watched a ton of slow Bills offenses over the years. When yep. you can't stretch the field and you're, you don't have anybody who scares a safety out of the box, it gets tight. It gets yep. tight down there. And it slows your offense down, and you're having to do these 10 to 12 play drives. And I mean, your execution has to be perfect throughout those. If you have one misstep, one mistake, one blown assignment, that whole drive can get blown up. Now you, and you're you mentioned Nelson Aguilar. Nelson Aguilar, over his last four games, to put his struggles into perspective for Bills fans, 230 snaps. Out of those 230 snaps, he's managed seven receptions, 86 yards, no touchdowns, and a fumble. That's and Matt, Z- Holland, Matt Collins is starting. He has like 150 in his last 150 snaps. That's like one catch. They aren't getting anything out of these guys, man. It's, it's like it's Zay weird. Jones-esque, and we traded that guy. Fans here couldn't wait to shoot. You want to talk about firing people into the sun? 
They wanted to load him into a cannon and fire him across the parking lot like one of those clowns at the circus. Just bang, get him out of here. And, and Aguilar makes nine point four million this year because it's on his fifth year oh, option. Oh. Wait a minute, what? Oh Jesus! How upsetting is that? Guy on his contract wow. here, like that's the year you're supposed to ball out, <laughs> brother. <laughs> now we're talking about trading him. Like, Good he's lord! Just not How do you trade a guy who's making nine million for nothing? He's he's not giving you anything. He's yeah, like he's Charles not. Clay was here in our last season. He's he's essentially stealing from the team at this point. Yeah. So this, it sounds like the skill positions are really kind of letting you guys down. Your tight end group. Now, you mm. mentioned Dallas Goddard, how he's athletic, but he's athletic for a tight end. But Zach Ertz might be one of the more, now with the retirement of Gronk, in my mind, it's him and Travis Kelsey. They're the two players in the NFL who pace the tight end position in terms of what that position can be and is capable of. And I yep. think a lot of that goes to the way they're used. You know, you look at, you've got two offensive minds who kind of come from a similar tree with Peterson and with Reed. Ertz and Goddard, what have you, I mean, I, have they been the dynamic playmakers for you guys that they have been in the past? I mean, I hear a lot about how the wide receivers are letting the team down, and I'm having a hard time understanding why the tight ends aren't being looked at to do more of the heavy lifting. Yeah, and I also a uh, shout out to my guy George Kittle, who I think is the best tight end in the league. I didn't, I don't want to omit right, I'll him. Give him. I'm you sure know what? I'll give him that. You. It's fine. <laughs> no, you know what? I don't watch NFC. I don't watch a ton of NFC football, and if I do, oh, okay. it's because I'm already half in the bag, and I'm just trying to come down from the Bills game. <laughs> so I might miss a thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's understandable. But no, this this team wants to be a twelve personnel team. This is why when you saw going into the Atlanta game, all of a sudden Dallas Goddard, who was struggling with a calf injury in preseason, and then got shut down right before the game. And the Eagles were only carrying two tight ends for that game. Mm-hmm. Now you're down to one. Now you have to rip up an entire half of your of your playbook. And the offense predictably struggled, especially in the first half, trying to make those adjustments. They are key to this team, not only in the, in the, in the running game, but in the passing game as well, because they can force teams into situations like the Green Bay Packers. You know, they went 12 personnel a bunch, and Green Bay put one linebacker on the field, <sighs> had a bunch of DBs out there, and they just got steamrolled. Like, that was the best running game for, for the Eagles, you know, all year, and for very good reason. They were just bigger mm-hmm. than the guys. So there's still a very important, you know, part of this offense. And Zach Ertz, who leads the team in targets and receptions, he, he's had a couple slip-ups this year with some important drops. You know, the Atlanta game where it's fourth and seven and he's short of the sticks. That that was, that one was weird. And, and you know, he had the fumble in the Minnesota game when they were trying to claw their way back into it down 11. So he, had, he is not, you know, without fault, but he's also still been a pretty consistent performer. Dallas Goddard, like I said, struggling with a calf injury. Uh, had a beautiful touchdown against the, uh, against the Cowboys. Unfortunately, on the first drive, he fumbled the ball. This whole team feels like, and, and you can take, put this on the receivers, you can put it on the running backs, you can put it on the offensive line, you can put it on the defense, you can put it on the coaches. This whole team is either pressing or they're just flat out underperforming. And, and it's hard to tell, you know, which one is which for each player. But I think Goddard, being a young player, is is just pressing just a little bit. I mean, he had a drop against the Lions that, that was dropped for a touchdown. How many guys do I have to talk about? <laughs> I was going to say. That had, that yeah. had like, catastrophic say. drops. The Eagles were one of the top teams in drops in, in drops in the NFL. I know last week it was the Cowboys and Eagles were the two top teams for drops. Carson Wentz isn't getting any help. He has to be perfect just to keep him in the game. And when he's not, like he was against the Cowboys, he was not perfect. He wasn't close to it. They got predictably blown out. Same thing with the Vikings game. Uh, they need so much more from their playmakers, for sure. Well, so it sounds like the quarterback's not getting a whole lot of help, and that's the other place I want to look at when I talk about your offense. I mean, your offensive line's been fairly healthy based on everything I've read. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Dillard's finally, Dillard's getting reps as your mm-hmm. left tackle, and he, by all accounts, hasn't been a tire fire. I mean, your rushing attack is still working. And I can tell that you guys are using... 
There's one, before I move on, there's one more skill guy that I got to ask about because I'm just confused. Now, you have Jordan Howard, and anybody who's watched football for the last five years knows who and what Jordan Howard is. And uh-huh. he, he's a hammer. He's going to run between the tackles very effectively. I mean, I, I don't. he's not going to break tackles like he's Marshawn Lynch, but he doesn't shy away from contact, and he gets downfield quick. Uh-huh. So with that dynamic, you guys draft Miles Sanders. He's one of the first running backs off the board this season. And you look at what he's doing on the ground, and you're not really impressed, but at the same time, He's averaging 14.4 yards per reception whenever he's uh-huh. involved in the passing attack. But I, So how is Sanders utilized, and how do you think they're going to try to work him into this, especially a, when everybody else seems to be struggling? Yeah, I, I think with Sanders, he's really, really struggling as a runner. Just inefficient footwork, indecisive processing. I mean, you, you can one play pretty much describes him as a runner as the third and four against Dallas, where you know, Andre Diller comes across, get, hits a beautiful log block, all he has to do is run off his butt, just light up and match off his butt, and he's got the conversion. That's been a problem for him all year. But the way that they've used, they've used him in the passing game has been great. And he was a plus projection for me, despite not getting a lot of pass, you know, pass work at Penn State as mm-hmm. a receiver. And the Eagles do a really good job with their, their mesh-sit-wheel series and, and these other types of yep. things to, to get natural rubs on guys that need to pick up Sanders. So they scheme up the running back catches really well. And his athletic profile, that's where it matches him. Because he's not dancing behind the line. He can actually showcase you know, the burst that he has and the lateral agility and all that stuff. So if you get him on the linebacker, you know, fantastic. I'm just a little pissed off that they drafted a receiving back in the second round. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so would I. I mean, yeah. you expected Sanders to be a better runner, but it is, and it's funny to me, and it's something that Bills fans need to be aware of. And hopefully, hopefully, our, hopefully our defensive <laughs> coordinator is paying attention because I swear to God, if I have to hear about the fact that this is the coming out party, for Sanders in the passing game, I'm going to flip out because all of the evidence is there that he, he can execute. And this offense, despite everything else that's struggling, the kid can make things happen if you get him the ball in space and you block appropriately. And yeah. I, after watching that Miami game, I'm just I'm going to be looking at that as something that if our staff isn't ready for, I'm going to be really pissed off. Yeah. Carson Wentz. That's the guy. You know, when you when you look at a team, it's funny. You actually you actually mentioned this on your podcast on Sunday. I've listened to you and Ben make a point that I after hearing it, mulling it over between Sunday and now, I, I think you're one hundred percent correct. Despite what national media may try to tell you, despite what your local media may try to tell you, d- despite what some drunk podcaster may try to tell you, <laughs> it is relatively easy to look at an NFL team. And tell if and when the quarterback is the problem with an offense. Luke Falk, Mitch Trubisky, Sam Darnold, last night against New England. These are all examples of guys who, when you watch them play, you're watching a team struggle, but you can point to it and say, okay, a lot of this is that guy. It's not the tackles aren't picking up you know, the rush. It's not that the offensive coordinator is putting them in a bad spot. It's that guy. He just can't yeah. execute. So, I don't know. For my own taste, despite a record, you can go back and watch Bills games where you see the fact that the Bills have left a lot of points on the field because of lack of execution. Yeah. And I know that I'm the guy. I've been rattling the cage of Josh Allen isn't who I want him to be. It's worth noting that it's an absurd contrast, but his fourth quarter performance has him third in the entire NFL in QBR. And it's a major part of our 5-1 and start. 
So with that said, what have you seen from Carson Wentz? Has this guy had games like that that you're looking at and saying he's the problem? Or do you genuinely believe that if the rest of the guys around him can ever just get their shit together, they could make for a really imposing offense? Yeah, I'll put this in the context in the context of a couple different ways here, because number one, against the Cowboys, Carson Wentz had thrown eight passes in the first half, narrowed down 27 to 10. Not a, not a whole lot of opportunities there. No. And that third and that, that third and four was in the first half. They didn't put it in his hands. It was, it was super weird that they're not going to the franchise quarterback in that situation, but whatever. I mean, the, the week before, the blowout against the Vikings where they got down early. And, and you can blame Carson and, and the coaching staff for some of the slow starts. I, I, I completely get that. Mm-hmm. Carson tends to get in the groove around second, third quarter, and that's where it really clicks for him. But the defense is getting them out of games before that groove can happen. Uh, for instance, Carson went through one pass in the first quarter against the Vikings. They were down early in that game. Wow. Like that, that can't be a thing. And I think that's why Doug wanted to get the ball in the first half against the Cowboys, except Goddard fumbled it away. The offense <laughs> moved the ball. So, you know, <laughs> you're just unlucky. And the other way I look at it, too, and like you said, I think it's a very good point that you can look at a team and you can look at the guys around them and you can, you can very clearly see if the quarterback is holding them back, like with Trubisky, with the Bears. Or you can look at a team, and let, let, let's go with Drew Brees with the Saints. From 2012 to 2016, they had four seven and nine seasons. Four out of five years, they went seven and nine. Was Drew Brees the problem there? I don't think he was. But we're so obsessed with wins and losses. Mm-hmm. And some people you know, ascribe to, to QB wins more than other people do. A mm-hmm. lot of media people do because a lot of their discussions are framed under that. Well, he didn't win, so he didn't have a good game. He didn't have a good enough game. Well, they need perfection I, from Carson I, I was going to say, I think I may you know? be one of those people, and yet at the same Chris, if you could describe this for Mike, I think my problem has been and is becoming when it comes to Josh Allen. And tonight I kind of had something of a moment of clarity, if that's what we can call it. But I've very much been the guy who first, I was down because we weren't winning. And so, hey, he must not be very good if he can't get us to wins. Now yeah. we're winning and I'm still fighting. He seems to be angry about it, which obviously isn't popular with the fan base. It's not popular with the listeners. They go out of their way to tell me what an asshole I am. But that's fine. I'm okay with that. But the Eagles don't have a top five defense like Buffalo does. You know, they're not getting the same kind of support. The <laughs> Buffalo can win scoring in the teens. The Eagles can't. <laughs> you know, they're getting production on offense. There are games they should be winning. So and it's not just the offense. It's not just Wentz. It's their receivers too, dropping balls and all the fumbles and everything like that. Miles Sanders had two fumbles in the Lions game, along with Aguilar having another fumble. Then the then the drop touchdown at the end. Like, what else do you want the guy to do? Well, to that's win? I guess my thing is, despite the struggles, though, you still see when you look at this team, despite everything that's out there on paper all the negative statistics I could, I could spend time throwing at you. Mm-hmm. You still see the bones of what could be, if they ever just pulled their heads out of their asses, a yep. formidable attack. Yeah, And if you make a list of, of problems with this team and underperforming areas of this team, Carson Wentz is towards the bottom. Tough. That's just the way it is. <laughs> now, speaking towards the bottom, you just mentioned defense. I want to pivot. <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about this. The defense for the Eagles – Compared to this Jekyll and Hyde kind of offense that you've had for the course of the season, some games they show up and just run your opponent out of the gym. Some weeks, it's like Sunday where they just can't get out of their own way. There's no question about the defense of the Eagles. They've been a world-class brand of terrible this season. I mean, Warren, Warren Sharp on Twitter, the Eagles are the only team in the NFL to allow 20 or more points in the yeah. first half of five games. <laughs> and he has an asterisk 
next to the one that says zero points in week five because he says that's Luke Falk and that doesn't count. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, some of the numbers out there for this defense, 24th in points allowed per game. Just to put that in perspective, before last night, the New York Jets were higher than them and the Washington Redskins are ranked higher than that. Yeah. 25th in completions allowed per game, 19th in opponent completion percentage. <laughs> you got to Okay, I think the place to start this conversation is probably the secondary and the thing I want to yeah. know is are they as bad as advertised? Yeah. And and it's I don't think it's the talent. I think Russell Douglas can be a perfectly cromulent outside corner. Like he's a high-end backup, maybe low-end starter. I mean, the same on the other side. Darby's healthy. I think he can be a lot better than than what he is in this stupid system. I mean, they play off coverage more than any other team in the NFL, but they also play. They also load the box more than any other team in the NFL. So, what does that tell you? There is space immediately to exploit. From the snap, you've right? recently you know, you've got- called for your for, from Jim Schwartz's head, uh, yep. and and you pointed uh-huh. out the fact that they lead the Eagles currently lead the NFL in quote unquote stack boxes, and yep. you referred to it as the plus one in the box rule. Why don't you tell me a little bit about the, what is this rule that Jim Schwartz seems to live and die by? Yeah, Jim Schwartz wants to stop the run, but first. And foremost, so he is going to load the box. And Next Gen Stats has it at like four different backs this year have gone over 60% stacked boxes against the Eagles. There's only been like 10 cases of that the entire year, the NFL. And, and as such, Jeez. because he, he wants to stop the run so much and he wants to be plus one in the box to st- stuff that down and force some, you know, some, some third and longs and whatnot so the pass rush can get there. At the same time, you saw the, the Cowboys do this, and I think the Bills should really be paying attention. When they went play action or they gave them any kind of eye candy going one way, the linebackers flow so hard to that action. I mean, you could you could play action to the right, and I guarantee you nine players, nine Philadelphia Eagles are going to be outside of the hash on that side of the field. And you, just, you could just run guys right across. You can bootleg outside. I mean, the Vikings did it very successfully. This team is so bad against play action, just to kind of illustrate this point. I don't, I, number one, I don't care that, that they're fantastic against the run because it's stupid and it's taking away resources to help these corners that are absolutely struggling. So quarterback rating, play action against the Eagles, combined quarterback would be at 127.4. The number one quarterback in the league in play action is Patrick Mahomes. He has a quarterback rating of 115.9, I believe. So that's nearly 12 points difference. This is a stud quarterback. This is a Hall of Fame quarterback when they go play action against the Eagles for very good reasons, for all the reasons I laid out. And it's not just the young corners. The safeties are busting, too. And you can look at the Vikings game for that. Look at Washington. You get all, all these different games where, where veterans like Jenkins, Andrew Sandejo, and they go to the outside. Rasul Douglas, Sidney Jones, Ronald Darby. There isn't a player in the secondary that isn't busting. And I put that completely 100% on Jim Schwartz. There are gigantic areas of access, free access, space between the first level to the second level and the second level to the third level. None of it makes any sense together when when you look at it on the whole. So, wow, that's great. You limited Dalvin Cook to 2.5 yards. What did that mean for the points up on the board? Not a damn thing. And that's so, ultimately what we're all here for, right? I mean, that's the thing that I, I, I spent the first I, I spent the first month of this football season railing against Josh Allen, and I think one of the strongest points I thought I had was this idea that we're 25th in scoring. Mm. Don't tell me about 71 percent completion against the defense. Show me <laughs> points because 
you know what I mean? 14 points isn't going to beat a lot of NFL football teams. When I called the Bills a paper tiger at four and one, and I showed them, and I, and I, and I said they have an inept offense, and I still stand by that. They have an inept offense. They were something like, what, 25th in, in, in scoring? Uh, yep. Like 26th, 27th in, in, in DVOA? Like all the, the meaningful stats were in that area. Yep. And people came back to me, well, they're 13th in yards. So what? And I guess it's so what? You can't exactly. even get to the red zone. That's you can't even get to the red zone. But then when they You're do get in the red zone, get there. they pummel people. So it's yeah. just it's mind-boggling. And so I guess it just depends on what you subscribe to. And ultimately, there isn't a right answer. But I'll say this: your defense, your secondary is twenty-first in opponent first first downs via pass. Thirteen yep. a game <laughs> they're allowing. I mean, it's that's, insane. That's they, they went from the, the, the biggest shift in DVOA from week four to week five in the history of DVOA was the Eagles going from 22nd to sixth because they played the Jets. They wow. are they they're they're more like the 22nd defense than they are the six. I guarantee that much. So so with this in mind, and we're talking about the the scheme, the fact that they bite on play action so hard at the at the linebacker level and into the secondary. Oh. What types of wide receivers do you think they tend to struggle with the most? And do you think that the matchup that's in front of us for Sunday, do you think that are there favorable matchups there to be had for the Bills? I mean, when you look at our team as an outsider, you know, I can tell you all about Dawson Knox's athleticism, but he's a rookie and he's got some suspect hands. I can tell you that 80, 80 some odd percent of our first downs over the early portion of the season have been thrown to two guys, Cole Beasley, John Brown. They're just his go-to targets. When you look at who these guys are as players and you see the offense as a whole, to your point, you still think that we're not a good offense. Is there concern in your mind when it comes to the the way your defense is currently playing? So John Brown, Robert Foster, are both those guys healthy? Like 100%? Foster may play. No one really knows what's going on with him. At first it started off as turf toe, then it was labeled a groin. And then he just kind of, then he was just a healthy scratch. Okay. Yeah. So, I know he was kind of phased out in the offense in the offseason too, which was weird. People were expecting yes. more out of him. But but John Brown's got four three speed, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh th- this Eagles team going back to last year was the dead last DVOA team in nine routes, you know, go routes yep. and post routes. Uh they struggle really bad against speed. Russell Douglas is like a fourth, like a high four or five guy. Uh, and the way that they're taught, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. I think there's a serious disconnect between Schwartz and defensive backs Corey Unlin because the technique they use doesn't make much sense. And, you know, they're fantastic at intermediate routes, dig routes and, and, and things of that nature. They're fantastic against those. But it's literally where they're standing at the at the snap is where they can cover <laughs> because you know, in front of them is bad and behind them is bad. So John Brown is is going to get his chance to eat now. That's the receiver that worries me. Can Josh Allen hit him? Because while I'll give Josh Allen credit for being much more accurate than he was as a rookie in the, in the short to intermediate areas, and I think a lot of the analytics bear that out, he's one of the worst deep ball passers in the league in terms of accuracy. They had a chance to put the Dolphins away last, last week. He overthrew his guy by like 15 yards. He Chris, grab me another beer. Of course he's going to bring that up. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Kiss, what are you doing to me here? Sorry. Man. I mean, that's just... <laughs> But I mean, John Brown's is going to get it. That's the guy that scares me more more than anybody else. I could I could care less about you know other guys getting catches underneath. The Eagles will come up and rally and tackle and, and whatnot. But it doesn't matter if they give up explosive plays, and that's what this defense has been doing. 
Well, see, and that's and that scares me because that's one of the places that we've struggled as an offense. I mean, generating yeah, yards after the catch were one of the well, exactly. It's weakness versus weakness, and whoever's the whoever's the strongest out of two terrible things. <laughs> oh my god, that's a ter- Do you have any idea what a shit show we might be in store for? No. Oh no. <laughs> Now, I mean, you beat up a bunch of tomato cans and then, you know, you think like Philly is the is the game you can kind of gauge it around after losing to the Patriots. And the Eagles are a shit show right now. So, <laughs> I mean, you I'm were not going to lie. I kind of thought that when I was looking yeah. over the schedule, we all I, kind of said, OK, this is the stretch of the season where you look at games against Philly. You, you've got Miami and Washington sandwiched around matchups with Cleveland and Philly. And so yep. in your mind, when the season, when the schedule comes out, you say, okay, those are two contending teams. These are going to be measuring stick games to see if we're actually where we think we are. Now what you're talking about is putting one of the worst scoring offenses in football up against one of the worst defenses in football. Yeah. What, what and if how it can just, you gauge that? And, my, and, and you underperformed against Miami. You needed a, what, 98-yard touchdown drive, and you needed Trey White to bail you out in, in the red zone with a beautiful interception, by the way. I'm not going to lie, I, that 98-yard touchdown drive. For all of this is what I'm talking about, having a moment. Yep. That drive, though, six to six, not a miss. Yep. He threw more 15 or more yard passes than he had the entire first half. Yep. There's something. God help you guys if we're trailing in the fourth quarter. Your best yep. bet would be to give him the lead and then let him <laughs> you know, give him a lead, lull him to sleep, and then try to come back and win. <laughs> Josh, Allen, it, 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 Josh Allen will be great if Josh Allen didn't need – to be such a gamer, and if he wasn't such a gamer when it was required, if he was more of a gamer when it wasn't required. Because yeah. the guy, look, the guy is clutch. He's, he, he puts all that dumb stuff that he does behind him. I don't think he thinks about it. And he just goes and plays, and, and it really doesn't bother him. And, I, and that's, that's a, that's a big-time thing for a quarterback, that competitive toughness. You know, you can knock him for making stupid decisions and, and whatnot that have been cropping up for him. And I'm sure, you know, Buffalo fans understand that. They're frustrated with it, too. The guy puts it behind him, and, and when the game's on the line, the guy's a gamer. I just wish, you know, he would be more of a gamer for four quarters, and it wouldn't have, have to be that every week. You shouldn't have to depend on that. Just not Sunday, right? Just not Sunday, right? <laughs> well, I mean, look, brother, at this point, you know, we, we all talk like we and, and us and whatnot when we talk about our team. Like, I'm, I'm talking about the mm-hmm. Eagles as they and them. Yeah. You know, I, I cover them. I, I can I can take the uh, you know, emotional attachment out of it and be an objective analyst. You know what I mean? See, and so, that's the difference between guys like you and me. See, I don't have that in me. I'm in this thing now. I'm stuck here in this place where the team, me, I mean, this – one of my famous stories, you've probably never heard it, uh, Steelers game. Le'Veon Bell has almost 300 yards against a Rex Ryan-led Bills team. Uh, here, the Steelers come in, they steamroll us. I leave the game early, I go home. My wife, she attended the game, she was tailgating with us. She comes home and she's like, oh, well, you know, now I've just been drinking for hours. <laughs> and she comes home and she, my clothes smell like campfire, and so does hers. And she's like, well, do you want me to wash your clothes? I mean, I'm... I'm doing my laundry. I'll do yours too. And I was like, yeah, sure. So I stripped down right there and I give them to her. Now it's December and I'm in a, I'm in a basement bar, (laughs) a bar in the basement of my house. And she comes back out and then she comes down to flip the laundry an hour later after it's done in the wash. And she realizes I'm still back there naked (laughs) as a jaybird wearing sandals with a beer in each hand. And she goes, aren't you going to put clothes on? It's freezing down here. And my response was, I I don't remember this, but my response was apparently that the bills make me too angry for pants. (laughs) 
That's who I am. I'm, I'm yeah. in it to this level now, and I can't get out. Yeah, and I won't say I won't be upset if the Eagles lose to the Bills, but, you know, at, at some point, and I guess this is what the Super Bowl did to us that, that, that makes it different than the Bills. At some point, you realize it is – it's just – kind of it's just sports like, you know you, you, you shouldn't tie up your emotion i mean i have a great life i have you know a beautiful sons and a beautiful wife and a great house and a great job like what do i really have to be upset about but at the same time yeah i mean the eagles get me upset every now and then <laughs> but my expectations have been lowered enough i think coming into that cowboys game and, and it's funny too because like going into the lions game a lot of eagles fans were upset after the fact that i had actually picked the lions to win like I, I can't be upset if if I'm not surprised by something. I think that I think that's the that's the key right there. You, I still love the Eagles, but I, I'm not going to be surprised by something if I kind of saw it coming. That your just, professionalism, sir, blows me away, and I just <laughs> I, I I can I I ascribe to it, but I I don't think I'll ever get there. <laughs> I don't yeah, think well, I'll ever get there. The Super Bowl, maybe that'll change for you. you maybe, know? but probably not. It'll probably just make it worse. <laughs> One thing before we let you go. This defense, you just spent a lot of time talking about the defense and, you know, the, the fact that they're statistically one of the worst in the NFL. We know what the, I know what their front seven is. For our listeners out there who may not know, Derek Barnett, Brandon Graham, they're proven pass rushers. Fletcher Cox just got his first sack, which is weird. But one of the things where they match up well against us is this, is this pass rush because our offensive line for all the money we spent hasn't been great there. So I'm worried about that. But when I look at this as a whole... You can only it's like it's like softball. You know, me and my I played on a softball team for years that literally we would we'd have amazing defensive players, which sounds stupid for slow pitch softball. But it was the type of team that could win a slow pitch softball game with six runs. Yeah. Who wins a slow pitch softball game with six <laughs> runs? Nobody. You're not supposed to be able to do it. And I feel like that's how the Buffalo Bills have been this year. They're winning games. Scoring six runs in slow pitch softball. It shouldn't be yeah. possible, but you're doing it. So with that said, if the team was going to find success attacking this defense, John Brown obviously making the big play would hurt you guys. But our quarterback doesn't seem like, or at least to this point, whether it's scheme, whether it's coordinator, whether it's just the, I don't even know what you want to call it, if it's just bad luck, it hasn't panned out. How, if you were the Buffalo Bills offensive coordinator, what would be your game plan for attacking this defense going into Sunday? Yeah, that's a great question because, like I said, with John Brown, you know, you've got the access to the deep ball if you want it, but that's that's not a consistent thing that you can count on, no. you know, drive by drive every time, right? No. So let, let's take that out of the equation and, and talk about how you can hurt this Eagles defense because uh, something that happened last year to the Eagles, and this is something I think the Bills can do successfully, is. They, they wanted to avoid the pass rush of the Eagles. That was better last year than it is this year, but it's still you know threatening, especially if Fletcher Cox is healthy. So yes. what, do you, what do you have to do? You have to get rid of the ball before 2.4 seconds, and you completely negate the pass rush. The Eagles faced seven opponents, opponents in a row in 2018 where the quarterback got rid of the ball in 2.4 seconds because the, the quick game was working, because of the off coverage and the disconnect between the box and the outside, right? So – you can have those outside throws, those easy money throws. I mean, we just had a podcast where we named it six yards is more than four, Jim, because the focus <laughs> is so much on the run game, but you're giving up free access with the passing six game, right? Yards so <laughs> so that, that's, that's the way you can do it. And I think for that reason that, you know, this could be like a big Cole Beasley type of game where he, he's kind of when – when the Bills need a, a conversion – 
or they need to keep a drive going or they need to, to stay ahead of schedule, scheming up Cole Beasley is, is going to be something that can be very successful to the, to, for them and help them sustain drives to the point where you have more chances to dial something up. You're on the field more. You have more chances to dial up that deep ball and give you access that way. So I would go with a lot of quick game stuff, and I'll give Josh Allen credit too. I think his quick game stuff, and like I said, I already mentioned his accuracy in the short to intermediate areas has improved from year to year. I, I think that's the big key for the Bills, and that'll help keep their their defense off the field as well and having to rely on them so much. So that, that's what I would do. And then I have one question before we get out of here about this. When watching Sunday's game, because I went back and rewatched it in advance of this because I'm like, I don't know what the hell's going on here. I expected the I expected compete out of your team after your coach said, that hey, we guarantee a win, and then he waffled. The Cowboys ran a shitload of 21 personnel. For those yep. not football terminology inclined, that's a tight end. They call it two running backs, but it's essentially a running back and a fullback and two wide receivers. So they went with a large package in an effort to try to put blockers on your linebackers, expose tackling issues, and get their running backs clean at least to the second level. And it worked to the tune of almost 200 yards on the ground. Now, is that just a, hey, the Cowboys have one of the better offensive lines in football and they have Ezekiel Elliott? Or is that something that you think a team with some athletic guys who can block in space might be able to, maybe they can't replicate it? But do you think that's a place that a Bills offense with the running game, despite Jim Schwartz trying to shut it down, might be able to find some success? I, I think it's a way of playing the Eagles like a fiddle because you see what happened with Zach Brown got cut, right? LJ Fort got cut. Now he's starting in Baltimore. That was dumb. Well, yeah, that right. was ridiculous. I, you, yeah. you guys have cut two linebackers who were stud run defenders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not, they're not three down guys. And Nigel Bradham has a foot injury. So he was out. So now you're talking about three linebackers that are gone and the Eagles have to go deep. The Eagles respond to 21 personnel with base. So you're saying, hey, Philadelphia, get a worse player on the field for us. So we could go from 11 to 21 and we get a, we get a, we get a serious downgrade at one position. Yeah, let's go for it. And these guys are complete dum-dums. We can influence them any way we want. We can give them eye candy over here. We come back the other way. Yeah, let's do that. Because I don't think the Cowboys – like offensive line was struggling coming into this game. They weren't very good against the Jets. They were seriously on the struggle bus. I mean, for the past three weeks, they had averaged 3.9 yards per carry. They haven't been that fantastic. So I don't think it's that. I just think the linebacker play for the Eagles was so poor and the Cowboys wanted to have access to it. And it's not even necessarily with a fullback. You can put, you know, two running backs in there and you can you can get matchups that way too because the Eagles linebacking core is a, a serious liability. So the Dallas said, we want three linebackers on the field. And they did the necessary packages to attack that way. So I, I think that's something that the Bills can look at, too, and say, hey, maybe we can put Frank Gore and De- Devin Singletary, who's healthy, right? Singletary's healthy Oh, now. yeah. They, I think yeah. they've been saying they, they had him on a pitch count for the last game. He yeah. it was one of the things that really befuddled me is the idea that Singletary didn't really get a whole lot of run despite sitting out for as long as he did. And I have a yeah. feeling that p- part of that's because they want to make sure he's healthy for this game. And you can run two, two, you know, two running back sets and get three linebackers, and the most of them are probably going to be bad. So, yeah, that's something that the Bills can do, too. Fantastic. I, I, I'm excited. I'm excited about this game <laughs> because I know because I want to find out. I want to find out. In, in years past, I'm, I used to be the type of fan who was just happy to be here. Oh, our team's winning, and I'm just pumped to be on the bandwagon. Yeah. I've seen enough of that. I've also seen enough of the years where we go five wins to start a year, four wins to start a year. They tease you with something, and then it blows up 
it blows up like something out of a Rambo movie. Like Kill, Hiroshima. Kills almost everybody. And by the end, of it, it's just ugly. So I want to believe that this... I, I'm, I'm excited for the, to see this game and see how it plays out because I think it's going to tell me personally a lot about where this team is headed. Now, yeah. your prediction for the game on Sunday. Final score, oh. what do you got? Man, it's hard for me to believe in the Eagles right now. And uh, like I said... Teams have the blueprint on how to how to beat Schwartz. All Josh Allen has to do is connect and be be somewhat consistent. That's a tough projection for me. I think he can do it in the quick game. Deep shots are going to be there. I think they take enough of them to where he hurts them with at least a couple of them. And there's no unity on this team right now for the Eagles. They may get it right. I'm not convinced of it. I have no reason to believe that they will, other than the fact that you know Doug has previously managed some turnarounds before, but sometimes it takes a little bit. So. I'm picking the Bills to win this one. And wow. it's funny because, you know, I've given a lot of crap to Josh Allen and Bills Mafia is constantly in my mentions. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? And they'd be like, whoa, hey, listen, your Eagles. Remember. Listen, we made Eagles. Taylor Lewan publicly apologize. <laughs> we made Taylor Lewan publicly apologize after he made some cracks. He got into it with Jordan Phillips, and I don't think he realized the size of the bandwagon that was coming for him. Yeah, it's crazy, man. They they come out in force, and I and I respect the hell out of it. Like, you could, come on in, come on in the mentions, man. Let's 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 have a dialogue. But you know, if they if they beat the Eagles, you know, I, I wouldn't really be surprised. And it doesn't really change too much for me, depending on on how the game goes. About what the Bills are and the questions that I have about them still. That's how down I am on the team <laughs> that I cover. So there you go. If you want to talk trash about the uh, about the Eagles. I'll be right there with you, brother. <laughs> I'll be right there with you, side by side. Let's let's go to town. No one ha- no one hates the Eagles when they're playing bad more than Eagles fans. <laughs> oh, oh, trust me, Philly fans. We we opened this whole thing with a story about Philly. I, I'm pretty sure everyone believes you at this point. Where can people find your work, and where can they find you? Where can they find your podcast? Because I got to tell you, it's it's hilarious. I I just like the way you and you and Solak kind of balance each other out. Yeah, it's it's a big yin yang thing. They're the raging yang and the, and the calming yang, when I, all that <laughs> stuff. Uh, Bleeding Green Nation into any podcast app, it will come up. We are the most comprehensive, biggest team brand podcast, most downloaded, highest rated team brand podcast in the world across any sport. I guarantee you that we are blowing up, man. It's awesome. But do that. Come check us out because we're going to have previews of this game. Both you know, we're going to have a set of preview shows for this game that are going to be awesome. You're going to learn a lot from it. I uh, promise you that. Uh, and Michael Kissed NFL. On Twitter, I'm a little more uh, abrasive there. So that's at your own risk. I listen, it, you listen, if they're listening to us and they're following our show and they're following us on Twitter, I mean, I yeah. did a, <laughs> I, I did a post-game press conference where I was wearing a jacket with no shirt on, like a leather jacket with no shirt on underneath it. So Hot. They, they can take yeah. it. They can handle it. Michael Kist, uh, NFL, K-I-S-T, and then BleedingGreenNation.com is where you can see the written work as well. Go follow Michael Kist on Twitter, at Michael Kist, NFL. Dude, he really thinks the Bills are going to win on Sunday. That's scary to me because this is to how me. Many, how many guests have come on this show now and just deferred to us? Uh, well, last week Travis said the, the, the Dolphins were going to get shut well, yeah, out because that's hard. Your team's <laughs> winless. Like that's hard to forecast. Ooh, you really called you a bold take there, Cotton. Well, yeah, but I think you and I look at this as is this is our first outside of New England. This is our first. True test this season. Oh, absolutely. This is a measuring stick game. and You're going to figure out what this team is. And I've got a couple ways that I think that they could win this, which leads us to this week's keys to victory. Wow, it's a lot of keys. Bigger the keychain, more powerful the man. 
My keychain is huge, and I am absolutely powerful. First of all, linebackers in our third safety have to win in coverage against the Eagles' tight ends, especially Zach Ertz. The wide receivers for the Eagles have caught a lot of shit in recent weeks for their just spotty performances. We were talking about it with Kist. As long as they have safety help over the top, our defense is capable of hemming in Chris, last year they proved it. A lot of the NFL's best passing attacks. With that said, it's worth noting that the Eagles are 2-0 over the last month when Ertz and Goddard are the team's leading receivers. And it makes sense. When you win against linebackers and safeties with your tight ends, it pulls them away from the from trying to help your cornerbacks in coverage. And it softens you up for Carson Wentz to take longer shots downfield or on kind of what Levi Wallace saw. It's a lot of quick comeback routes and things that get thrown directly in front of you. Those are less likely to be broken up if there's no safety net underneath in the pattern. So pulling those, having their tight ends succeed is a detriment to our cornerbacks. And they have a dynamic set of tight ends that if we can't find a way, hopefully Matt Milano's ready to go for this game because we're going to need him. If our linebackers can cover well against the tight ends, it's going to free up our safeties to continue helping out Levi Wallace and Trey White. The latter of whom, Levi Wallace, had a pretty rough outing when playing man coverage last week against Miami. He was asked to play a lot of man, and he did not do well with it. We should just uh, have uh, Levi Wallace shadow Aguilar since he can't catch. (laughs) Our defense doesn't operate like that. They set it up, and they play their zones, and they... Uh, I, we need to win against those tight ends. I think if we can take them out of the game, it changes the dynamic of what their offense is capable of. Second point, our defensive line has to once again carry a load. Chris, do you think Ed Oliver is an elite off, uh, elite defensive lineman at this point in his career? No. Okay. He has one sack that's not even against a quarterback, right? Correct. Okay. According to Pro Football Focus, Oliver has 11 pressures and 129 pass rush snaps, which is 10%. That's a decent conversion rate. And his quote-unquote pass rush win rate, the rate at which he wins when trying to pass rush against offensive linemen, he's ranked fourth in the entire NFL. Despite being behind Jordan Phillips and Sachs, Ed Oliver is metrically a far superior player. See, I don't notice stuff like that. No, you don't. (laughs) That's why I'm here. This week, it's going to be imperative that this team figures out how to control that line of scrimmage. And I'm looking at Ed Oliver and Jordan Phillips as kind of the keys to this. We're dealing with an Eagles attack that has proven the fact, I mean, Chris, they average a 111 rushing yards per game, which is pretty good. And at the same time, they've proven that they'll find creative ways to move the football if you let them do it. The way you disrupt an intricate passing attack is to punch them in the mouth. You get in the backfield. You harass their quarterback. If Phillips and Oliver are getting their work in, our defensive ends should find some work there on the edges, especially Jerry Hughes against a rookie in Andre Dillard over there playing left tackle. It's... It's going to make them winning up front, specifically Ed Oliver and Jordan Phillips, is going to make life easier on the rest of the defense as a whole. 
And that's where it's going to be won or lost, I think. I think a lot of it is dictated by that. And then, Chris, you just got to be the team that shows up. Sunday's game is going to be a matchup of two teams that are coming off of arguably their flattest games of the season, especially the Eagles, because they lost. The Bills almost lost to a winless football team. Considering all the criticism they've gotten, we could absolutely be on the end of another Miami Dolphins experience. So to that end, this trend that we've established of being late bloomers has to end on Sunday. Or else I don't know that we're going to have a shot late in the game to come back from this. This is a desperate team. And desperate teams can not only rally around the idea that their backs are against the wall, but they're also more inclined to take chances that they might otherwise not. To go for it on fourth and one when they might normally punt. To try more dangerous passes when they high risk, high reward type stuff. When they might not. When it works, you're called gutsy. When it fails, you're called foolish. But when you feel like your season's slipping away, people in and outside the locker room need convincing that you still got some life left. And because of that, wild shit can happen. Chris, think about the Buffalo Bills in 2017 against Kansas City. We got steamrolled three weeks in a row out of nowhere. The team was blown out. We might as well have not even bothered showing up for those games. Oh, that's a, the, the stretch with the Saints game? Yeah. Our head coach starts to come under fire because of poor choices. We're labeled as a team who's pissing a hot start away. We go on the road against a quote-unquote better Kansas City team because they not only underestimated us, but they underestimated the fight that we were going to bring to them in that game. The fact that our coach had owned his mistakes and he had circled the locker room. Chris, not to be cliche, but he circled the wagons. Okay? The fact that our defensive backs were going to fight for balls and that the aggression our offensive line was going to bring was something their defense wasn't prepared for. We won that football game and it keyed us on another winning streak that ultimately led us to the playoffs. The mental aspect of this game Sunday cannot be stated enough. (laughs) The team can prove to everyone from national pundits who doubt our offensive abilities to fans like you and me who still question what this team is made of because we haven't seen it for four quarters. To go out there and lay it out on the line for four full quarters. And even if you lose, if you showed me that, Chris, if they lose a shootout, but they're the team that shows up, that's it. If you're the team that answers the bell, you probably win this game. And even if you don't, If the Bills were to bring it for four straight quarters, would you still consider that a moral victory? I know people talk about there's not many of those. People talk about there aren't many of those. Chris, four quarters of great football and a loss. I'll be I'll be fine with that if we lose a close game. I mean, because this is it's been eight weeks and we outside of New England we haven't had a measuring stick game, and that's what this is. Philly's supposed to be good. I want to see them go out there. Put a complete game together. Show up from start to finish for the first time all season. Go out there and give them the best shot you have. And if it's not good enough, I'll still applaud you because you, because you finally gave me what you haven't all year, which is a complete performance. God, I can't wait. Chris, what do you think? Quick predictions. Where do you think we end up? 
I'm going to go with Philadelphia on the win here. Philadelphia, 17 to 14. Ooh, see, I can't bet against uh, Michael Kist if he's talking about he doesn't have any faith in his own team. Although I think some of that might be leftover resentment from Sunday night. But I think this defense is exploitable. And at some point, all right, I'm finally here at this place. At some point, Josh Allen has to come back around. At some point, he's going to have a game where he puts together a complete performance. It might not be the 122 passer rating performance that he is in the fourth quarter of every fucking game. But if he can be the 90 guy, the guy who completes... 65% of his passes, doesn't turn it over, gets us a couple scores, and starts early, puts the defense on their heels, softens them up for the course of the game. Chris, I I have to believe that that's what I'm going to see because at this point, they're pushing me in that direction anyway. I might as well steer into it. I'm going to say it's Bills 24, 17 to the Eagles. Fuck Jesus. Impressive. I think we're going to do it. All right. Well, next week, folks, listen up. Podcast will be out on Wednesday next week. I'm going to star set on Tuesday, so we're doing the show next Wednesday. God, I can't wait. I love that extra day of prep work. It just makes it, ah, oh, it's, yeah. Mwah. 14 pages it. that you're going to send me of stuff, <laughs> a bunch of graphs, color-coded. I can't wait for it. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for showing up this week, and thank you for sticking it out with me. I understand. I can be a blowhard. Sometimes I am Tony Montana at this point. I can be the bad guy if you want me to. I don't want to be. Guys, I just want to get along. And so with that said, I look forward to seeing each and every one of you bright and early out there on Sunday morning, 5330 Big Tree Road, Orchard Park, New York. Come find us. We'll be out there. Guys, we got to get the hell out of here. We've held on to you for long enough. I'm Drew Gear, that's Chris Krueger, and this has been the Rock Pal Report. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.